The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast for a couple of one-star hosts. Talk about five, four, and three-star prospects and everything in between. I am your one-star host, Chris Trevino. And as always, I'm joined by my podcasting Partner in crime, Hurricane Gerard Martinez. Gerard, how are we doing? I know you're a little bit hot right now because we got a little bit of a heat wave and you film from your or you record from your garage. We're back in the garage, baby. It's 98 degrees, but we got that lather going. We got to get that lather. It's that like clay fall camp. lather. It's like fall camp in here right now. <laughs> and for those who, who don't know why, it's because I live with three kids under the age of 10. One is just turned one years old. He's fully mobile, and uh, it's a little hard to uh, record quietly in the house. They're not my children. They're my sister's children. She's been living with me since COVID. She's actually trying to move back, uh, maybe to Iowa, maybe the Midwest. Not a big fan of California. Uh, understandable. But um, so, yeah. I have uh, a house full of uh, young children that uh, are not usually all that quiet. So uh, we uh, we do the best we can. We go to the garage. And we sweat it out, Chris. That's how we do it. Sweating it out is uh, is a good term for for us in this podcast. Now, Gerard, I just want to briefly address that last week we hit a milestone. We hit the three hour mark. People were really excited about it some were distraught about it people call the cops all these kinds of things so i don't really know what to do with us after we hit the mark we hit the milestone the thing that we've been uh striving towards you know like do do colors look different dude can you still taste food should we just stop the podcast altogether should we have just retired on the three-hour podcast what what are your thoughts right now I thought that's what this episode would be. It would be our farewell. Our we farewell. Okay. Three hours. Uh, we're going back to our regular lives and we will be normies and not have podcasts. We would just post on the board. But maybe not. Maybe we can push through that glass ceiling of three hours and go for four hours. Hey, the why the would you put why would you put that out there? Why would you the ultimate that? goal, Christopher Trevino, which is actually not your full name but i don't want to dox you anyways is to go for a 24-hour stream one day live during the signing day we will be there for 24 hours in the studio god knows what we'll do all that time but perhaps there'll be reason to actually be on there and people can watch us 
miserably grind out the hours waiting for new commitments and faxes to come in. But I just want to say, would it need to be 24 hours? Like we start at 6 a.m. Fine, because East Coast, whatever. But why would we need to go from like 10 to 6 a.m. the next morning? Would, would that be necessary, Gerard? Would that be necessary? I think it would be cool. I think it would be interesting. Now, wait, are you, is, are you being serious, though? Are you being serious like you would actually yeah, be? I mean, listen, I'm, I'm a fan of gaming. So I watch a lot of streaming on Twitch. And you have plenty of 24-hour streams. And they're different type of streams. Most of them are people just playing video games. So the common interest in being entertained is the video game itself. It's not just somebody sitting there talking at the camera the whole time. So we would have to kind of have some skits or some kind of something to fill the hours, obviously, because it's just not going to be us talking about recruiting. Or would it be? Could I possibly actually talk for 24 hours straight about recruiting? Sharing old stories. And you could. Stories. You absolutely could. I, I swear to God, you, you could and you would do it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think that's that's there's a big difference between three hours and 24 hours, Chris. But nevertheless, eh. that is, that is, there. is, in my opinion, the ultimate goal. That is the Everest of podcasting is a 24-hour stream. Actually, technically, Twitch allows you to go for 48 hours. So I've actually seen 48-hour streams for games that have launched and maybe is a new wipe or a new patch that comes out. And man, you got tens of thousands of people that watch those streams. I don't think we're going to get tens of thousands of people that would watch our 24-hour live signing day stream or maybe just a random in the middle of the week 24-hour recruiting stream but it's not about the people who watch it's about the people who want us to just do it longer for no reason <laughs> for no reason at all other than to hear you talk about recruiting and whatever comes up but i've seen people do 24-hour streams and then by the end they're like this is the f my future self never do a 24-hour stream Again, don't you do it. So I'm afraid it would break us. I don't know. Like, I don't actually, you'd probably be fine. Like, you would actually just be fine. But it might break me, and that's what I'm scared of. Yeah, I'd be fine. I'd be fine. But let's get to talking about this episode, this podcast. Give people their information, Chris. They're, they're on the ledge right now. They're walking it. They feel good about the football team, but they want to know more about this 2023 and 2024 recruiting classes. What does the future hold for USC, uh, Christopher? Right. So I remember you texting me late last night. You're doing the sheet and you're like, I don't think there's a lot to talk about. But here I'm staring at a full docket sheet of topics to talk about. We're going to talk about USC's new USC defensive lineman commit, Dejan Lafatite, that you went to go see. We're going to talk about a big potential flip watch with offensive tackle Elijah Page. We're going to talk about some Friday Night Lights. We're going to talk about Los Alamitos T.A. Cunningham. We're going to talk about some top performers over the weekend in the high school ranks. Obviously, we're going to have you talk about the recruiting angle of USC's thrilling comeback win, 17 to 14 over Oregon State. Talk a little bit about around college football, as always. High school schedule for this week. And, of course, we have a buttload of listener questions. They were flooding into my inbox today and my GMs, my GMs, sorry, my DMs. Not to be confused with Gerard Martinez. But before we get into another jam-packed show, we have to take a moment to shout out the official sponsor of Composite Two Star Recruits podcast, 
Meredith Schlosser. You can't call her one of the best. You can't call her one of the top real estate agents. She is one of the best real estate agents in Los Angeles with over $600 million. Let me say that again. $600 million in sales and more than 200 five-star Zillow reviews. Meredith and her team have represented Jeannie Buss all the way to me, Gerard. 10K Chris Trevino. Yes, I am being represented by Meredith and her team. Shout out to Jeremy Hensley in their rental department for helping me find a house to rent in Long Beach. Yes, you can be on the same real estate team as 10K Trevino. Think about that. Let that soak in. Meredith is backed by a full service team that allows her to service this wide range of clientele for rentals, sales, and purchases. She also has extensive experience with first-time home buyers and sellers. Most recently, Meredith was recognized by Wall Street Journal within the top 1.5% of agents in the nation. 1.5%. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That is S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. And you can check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. So definitely go check her out. Check out her Instagram. Check out her website if you're thinking about selling your house, buying a house, or looking for a rental. They do it all. And again, everyone from Jeannie Bus to 10K Chris Trevino, anyone can be a part of Meredith and her team and get represented by them. The best in Southern California. So thank you again to Meredith Schlosser uh, for sponsoring the Composite Two-Star Recruits. Now, Gerard, our cold open is a USC commit, a new, shiny new USC commit, three-star colony defensive tackle, Dejan Lafatite. And you went out here, you went out there to go see him play. This is a technically a Friday Night Lights part of that segment, but we're bumping it up to the cold open because it was a new commit, Happened, I don't know, 48 hours before you went to go see him. So you went out there and checked him out. So tell me, what did you see from the new Trojan commit, Gerard? Dejan Lafitte. We saw him play against Drupa Hills in a pretty good matchup. It's a, not necessarily a rivalry, but it's a game that um, you've got Ontario, you've got Fontana, and they're fairly close. And they play each other almost annually now, and they see each other sometimes in the playoffs. Uh, Drupa Hills came in one in three and they played some tough teams, but they've got some decent division one players, uh, themselves. They've got Cameron Taylor, who's a kind of a smallish five, 980 pound tailback. Uh, they've got Jordan Napier, who's about six, one, six, two, probably about two, two Oh five at this point, uh, a really good player that's committed to San Diego state, a guy that I think would probably be a PAC 12 you know, maybe even a national recruit if he was, was just a little faster, if he had some good time. So playing against Drupa Hills, whose record wasn't that great, but nevertheless still a pretty good team that has some decent talent. And Drupa Hills just kind of blew him out in the second half. It ended up being 35-10. So they're watching Lafitte. You know, certainly he's going to get double teamed. Uh, a lot of people look at the competition level and they say, ah, oh, you know, he's playing against a bunch of little kids. Listen, folks, this is true of – 99% of the Division One linemen uh, offensive or defenses that you are going to see <laughs> every Friday. Okay, they don't see a lot of other Division One linemen going one-on-one. -on -one. That's a very rare thing uh, outside of maybe the Trinity League and a couple other places where you would see in a normal league game. So 
it's sort of par for the course in terms of the competition level. It's not bad overall. Like I said, uh, Drooper Hills does have a few Division One guys. I think what you see on film from him, just on huddle, is very reminiscent of what I saw Friday night. Great first step. The ability to just bounce right off of his stance. He's got good hands. He's very light on his feet. He moves really well laterally, so he doesn't stay blocked very long. Um, he split double teams uh, several times. Obviously, in this day and age with RPL, those quarterbacks are going to get the ball out pretty quickly. So there wasn't a lot of time for him to be able to get a lot of pressure on the quarterback. But he did have three pressures that I counted filming him. Uh, he had, uh, you know, a, a few knocks on the quarterback, didn't get any penalties, which was good. He had a couple opportunities there where he could have leveled the quarterback uh, a little late. It would have been a questionable call, but he pulled off a little bit on that. So um, he was uh, very aware in terms of uh, the pass rush. Um, Played well against the run. Unfortunately, it was just one of those things where, you know, they run away from him and were giving him a lot of opportunities to make plays. Anytime they really ran right at him, he made those plays. So a good player. Uh, there was uh, some questions about player comps, and somebody brought up George Uko, who played at Don Lugo High School, not too far from uh, Colony High School, Colony High School, excuse me, in, uh, in Ontario. There's some comparisons there, you know, that's that's not a bad comparison. I think George Uko, a little longer arms, a little higher cut in high school, probably a little better about running plays down from the backside, whereas I would say Lafitte is better uh, within his gap because he really, it's hard to engage him in a block and really drive block him because he's moving all the time. He's always, you know, he's like a boxer, you know, boxers, Good boxers are not good boxers just because of their hand speeds, because of their foot speed. You know, they move constantly, and that's usually your best defense. Uh, in boxing, it's your best defense when you are a defensive lineman, it, just to keep yourself from being leveraged too much by that offensive lineman, especially when you're seeing a double team. So he's, he's going to be a guy that's uh, difficult to get double teams on and difficult to block for a long time. You're going to have to have a quick passing game, uh, or he's going to be able to get upfield and he's going to make plays on uh, your offensive backfield. He played. Uh, defensive end and he played defensive tackle he moves he plays both I think he's definitely a defensive tackle at the next level you know he's a solid 6'2 280 285 pounds and um, a guy that's uh, talking to Greg Biggins he likes him enough that he feels like he could have four-star tape it's just a matter of getting the verifieds and that's why I was there uh, Friday to be able to just to eyeball and make sure that you know he really wasn't six foot and 260 or what have you because you know it's hard to really tell on huddle with linemen um, you're kind of trying to look for some relativity, some players that you may know. And if you don't have guys uh, on other teams that you know exactly how tall they are, you know, you can't really eyeball that. So I was there to see him and physically get an eyeball on him. And, uh, you know, I think he played well, certainly not, uh, you know, Leonard Williams or anything, you know, over the top where it's like, oh, my gosh, this guy is like really, really good. You know, Tuli, Tuli Pelotu, we saw him. We really liked him a, a lot and thought he was way, way underrated. Didn't get that feeling necessarily, Lafitte. I think he's a good player. I think he could be ranked a low four-star, and that would be justful. Um, but, you know, I understand why he's a three-star. Uh, so, you know, I think he he played to that level, maybe played a little bit above the level where he's rated right now. And in terms of his weight, where do you think he will end up in college in terms of what can that frame hold? I mean, I think he could be 300 pounds easy. It's a question of whether USC would want him to be that mm -hmm. big because obviously – you know, they've they've had Brandon Peely drop some weight or at least Brandon Peely has dropped some weight. I don't know if that was necessarily um, a mandate from Sean Nua or Alex Branch, but USC is definitely smaller. It seems like they're more in that 280 range. 
for their defensive tackles. Uh, that's rare nowadays in college football. You usually see 300 plus pound guys in the interior. Um, he could definitely put on 300 pounds. And I think he's one of those guys that certainly from a frame standpoint would maintain his quickness. Uh, I, I think he definitely doesn't need to, to lose weight or anything. He doesn't have any bad weight on him. He's actually uh, pretty good in terms of uh, muscle mass and he's very strong. And so, like I said, he's hard to, to keep a, a block on for long. He's just not necessarily one of those guys that's going to run down, um, you know, outside that first step. He, he's not necessarily super fast. His fifth, sixth step, you know, some guys, you see they have that closing speed when they can run plays down from the backside. Um, he's a guy that's going to be playing uh, really relatively his assignment, his gap, and that's where he's going to be. And he can do that, you know, like I said, that first step, he can get through that three technique really quickly and can make a play on the run for sure, 100%. Um, it's just those plays that are sort of outside the box, I don't think you're necessarily uh, going to count on him for a whole lot. And I heard you snuck in that interview. You had to go low key. Stuck in that yeah. You had to go low key. Uh, yeah, the, the the Colony High School coaches were not happy about that loss. Uh, Colony came in, I think they were three and one. So you know they felt like they should win that game, and and they got boat raced a bit in the second half, and uh, a lot of frustration. I will say this, and this is the thing that you don't see on Huddle, is that Dijon is very much a team leader. He was trying to get his guys going in the beginning of the game. He was trying to get his guys going on the sideline in the middle of the game. And after the game, he was the only guy that stepped up after the coaches really berated the team. And he did his own sort of Tim Tebow and, and came in and you know passionately said, we got to play a lot better, guys. We got to do more during the week. And, and clearly there was a feeling like maybe they were a bit lackadaisical during the week, feeling like Drupal Hills, it's a one and three school. They lost a bunch of games. So we're going to come in and we're just going to blow them out. And it was a it was a close game in the first half. It was just that second half. Uh, Drupal Hills really blew it open, and, and Colony had no answers. So in terms of intangibles, Lafitte had a, a lot of that. You know, really well spoken young man. And um, you know, you're talking about somebody who's got 23 tackles, 11 tackles for losses this season. He's got three sacks, so he's having a very good year. Uh, considering you know, like other defensive linemen that are playing on a team where you don't have a bunch of other Division One guys around you, he's going to get double team. He's going to get triple team. He played a little bit of offense against Drupal Hills. Played a little fullback. Didn't really do much there. We've seen him on his film actually catch the ball out of the backfield and show a little athleticism there. So I mean, again, he has quickness. Um, I think it's a, a really good pickup for USC. Certainly under the radar. He's a guy that you know USC is going to have to fight some other schools for still because he does want to take some visits. And last kind of note before we get into, I guess, a little bit of an overview about the class. I heard you had a fan come up to you, Gerard. A fan? Well, no. I mean, you know, I, I'm an IE guy, right? So, you know, people kind of have followed us. and You've got some Trojan fans. So, you know, Colony High School was incredibly welcoming and gracious. And, uh, you know, they, they, they love SC and, and they love the site there. So it was, uh, it was fun, you know, when you go out and people uh, kind of um, – they, they just have, you know, a little reference for what we do and, and everything. So, uh, you know, it's always a good time getting out there in the IE. Fontana is like right center IE. Uh, I grew up there kind of sort of. So um, it's uh, it's it's interesting seeing all these new high schools pop up. I've never been to Drupa Hills. You know, I've, I've been down to Drupa Valley and Kaiser. And so that's actually a brand new high school that just popped up. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful high school. They got a stadium right out of the gates. I know, uh, you know, uh, that's that's not necessarily something true for all new high schools. So uh, got a bunch of bunch of high schools there in Fontana now, you know, full high, uh, A.B. Miller um, up up north. You have Summit. 
And so, you know, back in the days when people remember IE football, it was all Ike and Full High. And that's when, you know, they were they were powers because you just had those two high schools. You know, Ike had Full High and you had Redlands out there. And then you had Colton, which was very good as well. And because of all these high schools now that have uh, sort of watered down the talent, you know, you've got everybody. You've got all kinds of kids all over the place. So unless you're in, you know, a parochial school where they can recruit and bring those guys first a little more popping up everywhere. I was just trying to give us some love because you said a coach came up to you and said he liked the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, you know, I, I don't want to put people on blast necessarily for. Uh, Why would that put them on blast? You know, because it's a guilty pleasure, Chris. You know, and then you start. <laughs> the next question is, OK, so how many hours do you want us to go? No, no, where do we? Uh, no, 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 no. Now, very quickly, some just the defensive line, I guess, recruiting overview we've seen. Sort of the board gets shifted around with new offers, you know, guys like Elijah Hughes, Sam Green, Dejan Lafatite, and two of those guys uh, came off the board, jumped into the USC class. Now, I know people, you know, still have eyes, hard eyes for Mateo. Uh, help me out, Gerard. Ugiangale. No, I, I butchered it. <laughs> it's Ungalele. Ungalele. Yeah. And Still on the board, obviously, still a still a big target, and I think a lot of fans would go bananas over a class with Mateo, Green, uh, Lafatite, and probably, I think, probably one more. I think they could take at least four guys in this defensive line class because they need more bodies. We never know what's going to happen with the transfer portal guys looking down the road. And you can also bring guys in via the transfer portal, but as we know, defensive line is a tough one because anytime any sort of talented defensive lineman goes into the portal, that's a hot commodity. That 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 puppy's going quick to some school. That's a fast process. So USC will have to be on that quickly. Now, where do you feel like USC stands defensive line recruiting? It's interesting. I feel like they're halfway there. They're getting some momentum. These two pickups, Green Lafatit and they, it's they just lucky, Chris. It's just lucky. You're, you're, I, you're lucky. putting more keys in there than there needs to be. Yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm fucking it up right now. But whatever, whatever. Oh, f bomb, and you're gonna deny it, but it's there. We I didn't drop an f bomb that time. Lafitte, Lafitte. Well, it's like uh, you know, Tabarucci. You know, I mean, that's not how you actually pronounce his name. It's Tabarucci. Uh, but you know, we like the U. It, it 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 just feels good. It makes you you say it and you feel better about yourself when you say Tabarucci. So I can understand where you want to make it more French than it is. It's la petite, la petite. Oh, that's a great that's a great impression. But back to the main point: USC defensive line recruiting feels like they're picking up some momentum, but they still need to hit on some some guys down the line. Yeah, for sure. And obviously we've talked a bit about Mateo Ungalale and, and, you know, battling uh, Ohio State and Oregon and some of these other schools. Uh, we felt like, you know, it was going to be USC Oregon for a while, I think, up until sort of after that visit. And then we start hearing a lot more about Ohio State, you know, kind of really resonating with him and not not really sure why. Like, I haven't yet to get that, like, specific answer as to, you know, what it is at the other than, you know, football development, obviously Ohio State has done a great job with guys um, getting to the NFL. So that, you know, stands there. But in terms of, you know, if there was something else, because the off-the-field factors for recruiting 
seem to all favor USC. And that's something that we have to continue to follow up on because now USC is rolling a bit on the field. And we know, or at least I know, because Chris, unfortunately, hasn't been around long enough covering USC. Poor Chris. I mean, he started covering USC and that started when they started going down. Uh, Poor me. Poor me. Poor me. Okay. Okay. Oh, okay. But nevertheless, when I started covering USC football recruiting, they started taking off and obviously ended up being a, a national championship contender year in and year out. Um, not taking any credit for that whatsoever. Yeah, what a what a what a what a what a humble brag that was. <laughs> I mean, Boy, I, just I, I did a humble there. brag at the same time as uh, uh, cursing you. It was a slight <laughs> and a humble brag for your for slight for me, humble brag for you. Wow, that was impressive. A little shell game, uh, but yeah. nevertheless, uh, yeah. I mean, but you haven't seen USC rolling like that, right? Where they just it's, you know, they could go out and, and get an official visit just about from anybody. You know, when they really start rolling and, you know, they start putting guys in the NFL and they're winning football games and they're playing for championships. And so it's one of those things where, you know, you kind of have to remember that and, and kind of put that in the back of your head. Like, listen, you know, they really start winning games. They can change some things real quickly here. And so with Ungalale, we're here in Ohio State, Ohio State, Ohio State. But, you know, we have to kind of see as, as the season progresses, if there's not some momentum shift in that just with him being able to get down to some games and hang out and see what some of these guys on the field are doing guys that maybe were on the team the last couple of years that are sort of just, you know, treading water development wise. And now they're guys that are actually making plays and, and looking a bit better. I mean, sh- certainly Tuli, uh, Pol- uh, Tuli Pelotu is one of the top players in the country. He's more than likely going to be a first round pick in my opinion. Um, his development has been steady, even with the last staff you saw him making plays. So it's not necessarily like, oh, wow, Sean Nua came and all of a sudden now it's an epiphany. He's a great player. He's been a guy that I think has been getting better. But you definitely want to see that continue. We talked about Corey Foreman. That's a little bit of that interesting sort of what happens with Corey Foreman. You know, does he end up being a guy that transfers out? It's always one of those things that, you know, we can look at it and say, well, listen, you know, there was a lot of questions about his – commitment to football and we got that right out of the gates with Sean Nua in February when we were allowed to talk to the assistant coaches and people were asking him specifically about Corey Foreman what do you make of Corey Foreman you know he was the number one recruit in the nation uh, uh, just the other year you know what what do you see from him how excited are you to coach him up and one of the first things that Sean Nua said was you know he's got to really want it and that was a little bit of like a you know reading between the lines okay, there's a commitment question there. How much does he really love football? How much does he want to sacrifice to, to be as great as, you know, he was coming out of high school? So that still remains a question. We didn't see him in the Oregon State game at all. We'll talk about that a little bit more later when we talk about the recruiting angle coming out of that game. Um, but that's one of those things that, again, you know, Mateo Angola is looking at all of this. And the perspective from a recruit is a lot different than the perspective of a fan or a reporter or somebody who's an actual day-by-day uh, observer of USC football. All the little ins and outs and the, the tiny little inches of progression or regression from players and what's going on behind the scenes. A lot of these kids, they just they don't, they don't get that stuff. They get the sports center version of what's going on. So uh, we'll see what happens with him. He's obviously a big time player that USC would continue to recruit and continue to want. It's just a matter of, you know, how much more traction are they getting with him with the season looking as good as it is. And obviously that last game, you know, the defense actually playing very well and being sort of the headline uh, of a win. Keon Keeley, still a guy might get an official visit from him. 
Um, later in the year, uh, he's got a few already scheduled right now. Uh, I think Florida was the last that it looks like he was going to take. Uh, but Ohio State's there. Alabama's there. Alabama sounds like they're still the big leader for him. So he's a guy that, you know, is still kind of out there. I think there's some other guys they're talking to. You know, it's hard to get confirmation on, you know, if they're talking to a player that's committed elsewhere. You know, these kids are committed elsewhere. They don't they want to talk too much about how they're, you know, still keeping their options open, uh, especially if they're taking visits or they've got visits already scheduled because the schools that they are committed to aren't going to like that very much. And they're going to blow up their phone and there's going to be a little bit of drama there. So you have to understand that um, that's not necessarily something that's going to be out there and talked about a whole lot. Um, Elijah Hughes is a, uh, you know, an edge rusher, 6'3", 265. Looks like a guy that's certainly going to be um, a, a, an end that has his hand on the ground, if not somebody that you move inside and actually play, uh, you know, just an interior defensive line, a three technique. Uh, he's guy that we're hearing some talk that maybe he's going to take an official visit this weekend to USC. Uh, so there's potential there with him. Somebody asked on the peristyle, you know, is he a priority? I think anybody that you bring in for an official visit is a priority, at least at that present time, you know, they're high enough on him that they want to bring him in on an official visit. I think with all of this, and you, you, you mentioned something about the bodies, how many guys are they going to recruit? Are they going to have four actual, you know, defensive linemen guys that you actually put your hand on the ground. I don't know if, uh, if, if Braylon Shelby would necessarily be considered a defensive lineman, even though he's an edge rusher type, you know, he's a good six, three, six, four, 235, 240 pounds. I think he's, you know, we talked about him a bit. He's more of a guy that can actually play off the line of scrimmage. So I don't necessarily classify him as a defensive lineman. That's where it sort of gets a little blurry between, you know, the edge rushers, that are edge rushers that should be putting their hands on the ground, like a Mateo Ungulale or an edge rusher that can legitimately back off the line of scrimmage and play in coverage. They're, they're different players. It really the edge rusher position, which I don't like personally, but they've made it one position used to be weak side defensive ends and strong side defensive ends. Now they're just edge rushers. And there's definitely a difference stylistically between the players in that group. There are those guys that are actually more like, Sam linebackers, guys that can back off the line of scrimmage and play in space, and then the guys you really want with their hand on the ground playing five technique, getting upfield. So, you know, that again, it blurs the line in terms of numbers, but in terms of the guys that actually put their hand on the ground and play defensive line and are working with Sean Newell, yeah, I think you could get four or five just because I just numbers wise, you got to look on the back end and guys that might transfer out, and you're not dealing with class limits anymore. It's not 25 full class, you got to do some okie doke early signings, blue shirts to be able to get more guys in the class. Now it's just 85. You know, it's that's the limit. You, you've got your 85 on the roster. And as long as those guys that transfer out go and end up at other schools and get scholarships to other schools, you're, you're no longer, you know, have to worry about them taking up uh, scholarship positions on your roster. So, yeah, it could get uh, one of those things where you could see a bit of an exodus uh, because there's some guys there that are that are on the roster right now that we haven't seen a whole lot of that could potentially end up transferring out. And I don't you know, necessarily want to call out any names, but certainly there's some players that we just haven't seen a whole lot of. And you can see some turnaround on the roster. And I think, you know, that's a position certainly that needs a little bit of an upgrade in talent. Absolutely. Anything else you want to talk about with uh, Lafitte? Lafitte, defensive I mean, line? Recruiting before we move on to some Arizona boys, Gerard. Yeah, just with Lafitte, he's going to still take some visits. He wants to take some visits. Okay. Tennessee, Utah, and Washington are three schools that he mentioned. He wants to take visits at some point this season. 
going to wait until December to take a visit to USC. So uh, a guy that, like I said, you know, they're going to continue to have to recruit him because there's some other schools that have come in as of late and are pushing on him hard. And uh, certainly Utah and Washington, you know, if USC ends up playing either of those teams, those are going to be tough games. Uh, you know, USC could lose those games, and then all of a sudden, you know, that's going to be a little harder for you on the recruiting trail. But he does want to play close to home, and that's something that's big to him. And certainly he looked at himself as an L.A. kid, and that was a dream offer for him, and that's why you saw the commitment so quickly. And with that, we'll transition out of the cold open to one of the exciting storylines from the last week, and that is a flip watch, Gerard. There is a there was a big uh, decommitment from four-star Pinnacle Phoenix, Arizona offensive tackle Elijah Page, who I was a big fan of in the spring, in the summer, but went ahead and made that early commitment to Notre Dame in the summer, did not take his USC official visit, but it was a name we kept out there, uh, you and I, as someone like, hey, down the road, USC's playing well, maybe Notre Dame's not playing well. That's a guy maybe you bring in for an official visit for that Notre Dame, Notre Dame weekend. Lo and behold, the Fighting Irish struggling to start the 2022 season. Elijah Page decides to make the move and back off that decommitment. He is a six foot seven, three hundred and four pound offensive tackle, consensus four star recruit. When USC offered him, I believe he was just a three star recruit. One of the first offers for Josh, Hen- Josh Henson when he got to USC. He's number two hundred and thirty seven overall player in the twenty four seven sports rankings. Number twenty four offensive tackle. Number three fifty three in the twenty four seven sports composite. Number thirty offensive tackle. And since that decommitment, and I'm talking like right away after he posted it on social media. All the crystal balls, all seven crystal balls have flipped to the Trojans from big national analysts like Greg Biggins, Brandon Huffman, Blair Angulo, who, Angulo, who covers the Arizona area, Tom Lloyd, the Notre Dame insider, and Steve Wilfong dropped a fong bong, as the peristyle likes to, to, to uh, call it, with a 10, gold-plated 10 lock, Gerard. So USC feeling really good about bringing on another offensive tackle. A that that potential left tackle that this class is missing for what is a great foundational offensive line class. Gerard, let's get your thoughts on this. Well, yeah, this was something that it was kind of in the works, and this is a great example of kind of know what might be happening, but you know, you don't want to necessarily cause drama and put something out there, and the kid decides not to decommit, you know, and it sort of stretches it out a little bit, and all of a sudden you look like you're just trying to cause trouble with somebody else's committed class. So there, the, the Notre Dame side ended up putting it out there like, you know, hey, look, it, it could happen in the next day or so. And so we were trying to get a hold of Eliza Page and didn't have much luck. But again, great example of these kids are not going to really talk a whole lot about wavering. Um, and we've been on the other side of that. You know, it's one of those things where you know, we've talked to kids about wavering and they've said flat out to our faces, no, we're not wavering, no not going to transfer, rumors aren't true, and then literally like 24 hours, 48 hours later, they do that exact same thing. So it's, it's one of those things, it's a delicate process of reporting and um, you know trying to get the facts out there and, and not necessarily um, just rumor mongering, right, and spreading because that's not really that professional. So this is something that, you know, came, we ended up decommitting. Obviously, even before the decommitment, we heard a lot of talk that USC was feeling pretty good about uh, recruiting him. And it's just another example of this is sort of the transformation 
you know, overall with USC football. You win on the field, you show that you can develop your players. And listen, the offensive line has played pretty good. I mean, we have to talk about the end of last year, how there was a bit of a turnaround in the run game. And PFF actually graded the offensive line as being one of the better ones in the country. A lot of people didn't believe that, but, you know, that was going by their grade system, watching film just of the offensive linemen. And now we go and fast forward to this year and we see, you know, I think on several levels, uh, some development. First and foremost, what pops off at you is the lack of holding calls and offsides. We saw a ton of that in the Clay Helton era where the offensive line just struggled to stay disciplined. Uh, as simple as that. And it derailed a lot of offensive drives. You get a holding call, you know, and you, Hey, we've got a first down run holding call. Well, no such drive that. killers, drive killers. And at the college level, you know, those negative plays are absolute drive killers. And so we've seen a turnaround to a large extent. And I know USC had a couple calls in the Oregon state game, but really even coming out of the spring game, you know, we saw the lack of penalties and it was like, wow, that was so smooth. <laughs> that game, like it just, you know, there was no interruptions because it was just not a lot of penalties. So that's been huge. The amount of time that Caleb Williams has to pass in the pocket, most downs is an eternity. Now I know he, in this past game, did a really good job of negating some negative plays, but even still it was him holding the ball in some occasions and he's holding the ball and he's holding the ball. And he's really trying to hold the ball to see something pop downfield. And that's when he starts to get pressured. So for the most part, the pass protection in most of these games has been excellent. And certainly in terms of finished blocking, you know, we've seen some guys again, going back to PFF and how they rate players. We've seen Andrew Voorhees, We've seen John Monheim. We've seen a couple of those players end up being one of the top players conference-wise, if not nationally, rated that particular week. So you're seeing these guys develop right before your eyes. We've seen Bobby Haskins inserted into the lineup after having an injury. He's played really well. You know, we're going to see what happens with Cortland Ford because he's had an injury. He's not been able to get in there. And they were sharing time a bit. So, you know, we want to see Cortland Ford as being one of those Clay Helton players, you know, can uh, Josh Henson coach him up. Can we see some player development from him? But we've certainly seen it across the board from all the other players. You know, Jonah Monheim is playing really well. Brett Nealon is playing excellent. Uh, I think, I mean, for me personally, Justin Didich is the guy that has developed the most. I think we've seen the most progression from him. This is a kid that we saw in the abbreviated 2020 season getting mauled by the interior pass rushers at Arizona State and Arizona. He, he had his hands full. He was getting bull rushed and completely, you know, reverse pancakes on some of those plays. And it was a big problem for USC. They were getting pass rush right up into the face of Keaton Slovis. You're not seeing that right now. You're not seeing that with Brett Nealon or Dustin Jesus. He's had a couple plays here and there where he has gone up against some good defensive tackles that have tried to just physically kind of take him on. But I think they're doing a much better job just as an offensive line, particularly with pass rush. And, yeah, the run game. By the way, USC, 100-yard rushers. Seems like every game now. What what was Ty? Uh, I think Travis Dye was a one thirty six this past game with a, a crucial fourth and two touchdown. I mean, running the ball when you have to run the ball. This is all stuff that offensive linemen are looking at. It's sort of an indirect uh, recruiting tool that you use because offensive linemen don't like to just sit on their heels the whole game, fifty times a game, and you've got somebody head slapping you. I mean, that's not legal, but they're just they're coming back and they're trying to use you as a sled. And that's all you are in the game is just trying to stand in front of somebody. 
Offensive linemen want to engage. They want to take out and exert some anger on the defensive line. They want to pancake block. They want to get downfield. They want to look like athletes. And they're able to do that a lot more in this offense, and they've been successful at doing that. And that's why you're starting to see guys like Elijah Page and other players, I'm sure, you're going to start picking up those phones and making those calls. And instead of going straight to voicemail, hey, coach, what's going on? Yeah, I'd love to visit. That's the change. That's the difference when USC starts to produce on the field. Gerard, you just asked you about uh, Elijah Page, and he went into a, a giant recruit angle about the whole team. That was impressive. But that's the context of it, right? That's why right, this podcast right. is what it is. It's bringing <laughs> in what's happening on the field and how that actually impacts directly the recruiting process. And people always want to know, you know, what's going on? What are these kids thinking? And what? Well, this is what they're seeing. And certainly, you know, with the offensive line, those guys have to look a little deeper because you're not going to get the, the – the box score sort of, this is what happened. So, you know, you, you, you do have to look a little more at film and I'm sure Josh Henson is a recruiter is, is outlining the guys that he has and, you know, the awards that they're getting weekly and the things that they're doing statistically, but also just in terms of, you know, again, when we go to that Oregon state game, the culture aspect of it. And uh, certainly I think there's a lot of other aspects, you know, playing away from home and, and looking at Notre Dame and seeing their offense and seeing, you know, what development has gone on there. There's a lot of other things that go along with it, but this is one of those things where, you know, you come out of the summer and we have a certain opinion of, you know, where the program is. And and for us, it's very difficult because we didn't, I mean, the program was just building and we had not seen anything on the field yet. Right. It was completely unproven. The philosophies and, and everything that was brought forth was kind of, well, this is what happened at Oklahoma. And, you know, it gets you part of the way, but it doesn't give you the full way. And until you get on the field and you actually see the coaching in action, you know, the kids and their families and their parents and even their high school coaches and the people that advise them, you know, they want to see that too. So it's sort of the second leg of this. Now some of those guys that were over the summer looking at USC and some of them even officially visited, guys like Elijah Page didn't because he committed to to Notre Dame early and decided I'm going to cancel my visits. Even those guys that visited already – now they're relooking at all of this. You know, now it's like, okay, that initial thing we saw, we, we believed that this was the way each of these teams were going to play, and this was the foundation that was set. I mean, USC was the one school out of all of them that didn't have really a foundation set, and now you're actually getting to see it. So, yeah, there's that sort of second wave now of these kids that are going to maybe take a, a look again at what they saw over the summer and say, okay, well, you know what? I heard that recruiting spiel was cool and everything, I didn't totally believe it. Now they're becoming believers because seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. Uh, and you mentioned a possible official visit this weekend? Yes. Elijah okay. Page uh, should officially visit this weekend. We reported that in the war room last week. Um, sounded like that was going to be the plan. And that's part of probably the confidence level that everybody has with Crystal Balls and him going to USC. Uh, there was some talk maybe he might commit this week, actually, and then take the official visit afterwards but probably wants to go through that visit process and, you know, look at the facilities and talk, sit down and talk with some of the professors um, and uh, the, you know, the, the business school uh, directors and, and things, you know, just academically. So he has an idea because again, he took an unofficial visit to USC during the spring, but he never took that official visit. He had it scheduled for the first week of June, but never took it. So he's actually going to probably take that official visit this weekend uh, along with uh, uh, Elijah Hughes. And I might be another official visitor uh, coming down the way. It's, again, one of those things that some of these guys you're dealing with are committed to other schools. 
And, you know, it's, it's new to maybe young USC fans that have just started following the program because during the Clay Helton era, all they heard was guys that were committed to USC visiting other schools. So now the shoe is on the other foot. And it's one of those things that guys just sometimes can pop up. Uh, and that, you know, that actually happened today. That did happen today. And I'm going to touch on that very quickly. But I just want to say, Gerard, do you think USC has room for both Elijah Page and Caleb Lomu? Yes, they do. I think they have room for all the talented big bodies they can get. Like I said, because there's no class limits, it's one of those things that you kind of get who you can get. And then maybe you sort it out closer to signing day and say, okay, wait, listen, you know, we don't have the numbers. We don't have um, the, the room on the roster. It's difficult because again, you're also sort of putting in your back pocket. There might be a game changing plug and play player out of the portal. Now we know the porthole is going to open back up again before early signing period. So that can dictate how many numbers you actually want to invest into the high school prospects into the 2023 class. So that we have to keep in mind as we get closer into November, we have to keep in mind that, you know, if, if there's potential that guys, you know, jump in the portal, maybe it's like a five-star running back or defensive lineman. And there was a guy that wasn't previously thought was going to transfer out of his present day school. And that kind of changes the game now. It's like, okay, we got to adjust here and uh, look at their numbers a little differently because we want to be able to pursue that transfer. I agree with you as well. They definitely have room for both and they definitely need both. You need some tackle bodies. The tackle depth down there is not as deep as you would like it. So get all the tackle depth you can and figure it out later. Now you sort of hinted at a visitor, a committed visitor. And that kind of brings us into our next uh, Arizona boy, pinnacle five-star tight end Deuce Robinson and major USC recruit who took his official visit to Georgia recently. And there's also this sort of a dual tight end dance that it seems to be developing. Uh, Why don't you lead us into that, Gerard? Well, yeah, you talk about Phoenix Pinnacle five-star tight end Deuce Robinson, the big uh, 6'5", 230-pound tight end, very, uh, you know, traditional tight end, a guy that, um, you know, has the size to block but has the athleticism to be a threat in the passing game. And he took his official visit to Georgia, which is, you know, something that we knew was scheduled for a long time. He wants to see uh, potentially Alabama and Texas as well. So while, you know, a lot of sources have been very confident about Deuce Robinson committing to USC, we knew that, you know, the official visit process is a process. And there's a lot of things that can change because of the impressions you get going and seeing other schools. And, um, you know, he took the visit to Georgia and from everything that we got, really liked the visit, you know, family liked the visit. And certain Georgia put something out there very interesting. You got Brock Bowers out in Georgia, the California kid from from Napa, California, uh, somebody that uh, USC wasn't able to get uh, really interested because he kind of wanted to go to a smaller college town. Um, Granted, I think if USC was playing for national championships, that probably would have been a different story. But nevertheless, I digress. Uh, Brock Bowers ends up out there and, and Georgia didn't play a great game this past weekend, but he did play a great game. And they've, you know, tried to use that's tight ends a lot here in their championship run. They also got Leonard Washington out there, another West Coast guy from Vegas um, that's playing for Georgia. So Georgia's had some success recruiting West Coast players at the tight end position, and they've utilized the tight end position. So there's something there, certainly, for Deuce Robinson to consider with Georgia. Still sounds like USC would be the school to beat if signing day was tomorrow, but we know signing day is not tomorrow. But 
the very interesting thing part about all of this is that we think uh, it's, it's, it's more or less been confirmed that Santa Rosa Beach, Florida, four-star tight end Pierce Sperlin took an unofficial visit to USC this weekend. So he's ranked, uh, depending on who you're you know, looking at, whether it's composite or the 24-7 centric rankings, the number two tight end in the nation. So you have Deuce Robinson, who a lot of people feel like is a USC lean, out visiting Athens. You had uh, Pierce Sperlin uh, out in L.A., visiting USC and taking in a practice. Now he was out here for a concert. I think he was at the Foo Fighter concert. So he was out in the West coast. We know that for sure. And uh, Chris Trevino, our man on the scene uh, saw him and thought this guy, I'm not 100% sure who this is. So went through the database. And uh, at this point we feel pretty confident saying that uh, he was out here unofficially visiting USC. So pretty interesting uh, seeing that, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, USC certainly not looking for a tight end trade there, but uh, nevertheless, I think it's a, an interesting sort of thing where you've got uh, a kid that's uh, one of the top tight ends in the nation committed to Georgia, uh, visiting USC, and then um, you know one of the top uh, t- the top tight end in the nation actually, Deuce Robinson, uh, officially visiting Georgia, basically within the same uh, 24 48 hour span. Definitely a very interesting visit, and it was driving me crazy that I could not figure out who he was because he looked like a dude, uh, Gerard. Absolutely. I wrote about it in the, in the Ghost Notes from Practice where you can kind of read up more detail about that. But I saw Annie Hansen. I'm there, you know, bright and early around like 7.30 a.m., 7.20 a.m., and I saw Annie Hansen come in. And that's my key. When I see Annie Hansen walk in early as me, I know that – there's there's some recruiting going on. There's some visitors on on tap. And the last time that happened, they had uh, Mililani, uh, the entire football team out. So that was on my radar. Then I saw her leave on that giant uh, cart, that golf cart, her special little big red golf cart. So I saw her leave to the uh, the parking structure. So I was like, all right, let's see if she comes back with. And it was this big looking kid and his dad. And they kind of went up to the office to get uh, lanyards with his name. But here's the thing. This kid did not put the lanyard on. And that was interesting to me. He he stuffed it in his pocket. I could see it in his pocket. So that was a little bit of a sign like "Hmm, maybe he doesn't want his name out there. Because most of the time, like 95% of the time, those kids come out with that lanyard on. You know, know, Gerard. And they like wearing it. And this kid did not. It was even his dad didn't have his lanyard on. So I thought that was very interesting. And first off the bat, just big just a big kid and look like an edge rusher or a tight end or maybe a guy that would maybe make into a lineman down the line, but super big. And I couldn't really get a frame of reference for how tall he was because he towered over Annie Hansen. But when he, he when she, when he went up to her husband, uh, Zach Hansen, the tight end coach, I noticed that Hansen was uh, talking to him the entire warmups on the sidelines. So that told me tight end and how big he was. Cause Zach Hansen, six foot eight tight end coach. And, uh, Pierce Berlin, basically right at him, you know, maybe a little bit short. I, I estimated maybe six foot six, six, seven. That ended up being right. Six foot six two twenty, And yeah, just pretty much chatted up with him the entire time. Did not see him uh, when I was watching defense. So that told me he was on the far side with the offense watching them. So really interesting, really big visitor. Again, was out here on the West Coast, maybe avoiding that uh, hurricane currently going down over there on the east, eastern seaboard in Florida and all that. But number two tight end, 24-7 sports rankings, definitely a uh, interesting one. So, Gerard, could USC possibly 
mess with three tight ends in their class? Well, that's that's interesting. I I mean, we know that uh, over the summer they recruited Walker Lyons, uh, the Folsom four-star tight end who ended up committing to Stanford. Now he's going to go on a Mormon mission. So we always knew, you know, with Deuce Robinson, the potential there with baseball, you know, could he be higher than the third round pick? You know, that's going to be something that people continue to project as we get closer to signing day. How much does baseball impact Deuce Robinson? The other guy that you have to mention in this group right now is Nicholas Harbor, you know, a 6'5", 235-pound sprinter out of the DMV, out of Washington, D.C., who came out here on an unofficial visit during the spring and really raved about the track program, raved about the football team and the coaches, and is a guy that USC is really fighting for to get an official visit later in the year, probably for that Notre Dame game. That's kind of what I'm thinking if they get that official visit, it's probably for the Notre Dame game. Uh, He recently just tweeted out something about Michigan being home. We know his mom is originally from Detroit, so he's got some connections there to Michigan. Uh, There was a crystal ball that went in for South Carolina. Uh, He took an unofficial visit there and then followed up with an official visit like a week or two later. And there was a lot of uh, momentum there with South Carolina. I think that's diminished, obviously, because, you know, of how South Carolina is played on the field. I think they hosted him on his official visit that game. They got walked. Dog walked. Yeah, and they got got dog walked. And, again, there is a connection here between wins and losses, player development, the NFL draft, and recruiting. It's not all NIL. There are other aspects. And we know USC, that kind of has always been sort of the weak point with a lot of these national recruits when you start to talk to them. It's the football aspect. It's the, you know, I love USC's academics. I love USC's location. Uh, I, I love the people. I love everything. But I'm skeptical about the coaching staff. I'm skeptical that Clay Helton's going to be there next year. I'm skeptical about the player development. How many guys did they have drafted next year? So on and so forth. So now that is, you know, Started starting to develop into being a more of a strong point for USC. Obviously, we've got a ways to go. You know, they beat uh, you know a few programs that are not nationally ready programs. Um, so we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But certainly, you have seen much improvement on the field, and this is sort of the result. And this is the early um, sign of you know where the football program is in terms of rebuilding. A lot of people wanted to look at it during the offseason and, and recruiting is always sort of the, the first thing that you see because, you know, you're not playing football until you get into September. And they judge the recruiting class by how things are changing. But that's kind of fool's goal. You know, the, how things are changing, it's going to be on the football field. And then you're going to see that resonate on the recruiting trail. So getting a guy like this just to pop in, uh, I, I don't think he was on an official visit to my knowledge. Um, I think he was probably here unofficially. But he wanted to come just check it out. And, and I don't think that happens if uh, USC is an eight-win team and they've got a, a head coach that's on the, the hot seat and that, that hasn't really necessarily produced a whole lot um, in terms of uh, NFL talent. So, yeah, I think this is sort of the fruits of the labor. And um, it'll be interesting to see if something comes from this. In terms of updates, um, you know, it's probably going to be the uh, Georgia site that has to get the update. It's going to be hard to get him on the phone as he remains committed to Georgia and um, you know, it's early returns. It's literally just happened this morning. So you know, we're not necessarily sure uh, how the visit went. If, you know, it was enough of a trip to, to, to sort of waver or, or, or put some doubt into his mind about Georgia. Certainly Georgia already has two tight end commits though. And now they are entertaining Deuce Robinson. So 
I'm sure that Pierce Berlin's looking at that a little bit. Like, okay, you know, you got two guys committed. Now you're committing uh, going after another guy on top of us trying to be in three. So, you know, that that could be a question a little bit uh, for him in his mind. Um, but certainly uh, this is um, an interesting turn of events, you know, uh, just seeing the coincidence that happens uh, that uh, Deuce Robinson's actually visiting Georgia this last weekend and then, you know, Georgia commits a visiting out here. Um, I would also want to follow up that, you know, there's some people that were asking about a Deuce Robinson visit update. We had a visit update from Blair Angulo, who works the region and does a fantastic job for 24-7 sports. A plus. Uh, we do not just randomly call kids that are perceived USC leans about visiting other schools. That is a bit fanboyish. That is not what we do. It's not, oh my gosh, this kid who, you know, if he's committed to USC, then that's one thing. But a kid that's uncommitted and just maybe favoring USC, we don't just start calling them right away uh, because they have visited another school. That's for Blair to do. You know, that's his job. We start stepping on people's feet. Um, you know, the Georgia side or whoever, uh, when we start doing that, um, sometimes, you know, it's just one of those things and it's a time thing. And it's like, okay, we haven't talked to this kid in a while. And he did, you know, visit another school, but it's not reactionary. You know, that's not how we work. Um, I think it's uh, one of those things that, you know, the fans have to kind of realize these kids have a lot of people calling them. They have a lot of people going into their DMs. You have to consider that you've got four or five national writers from each of these networks that are going to contact them on a regular basis. You probably have another five or six team guys that will contact them uh, from each network uh, that uh, that want to contact them on a regular basis, depending on what schools are considering and where they visit. Then you've got trainers and you've got their high school coaches and you've got all these other people that are involved. So, you know, we don't want to just, you know, kill these kids with phone calls and be annoying and constantly contact them. So we try to be respectful and hey, if he's at USC and it has something to do with USC, then we call him up and we talk to him. If it's a commit that's going somewhere else, then we try to call him up and, and talk to them. But when it's a kid that's uncommitted and he's looking at these other schools, um, that's, you know, that school that he visits, those are the writers that really are going to contact him and ask him about the visit. They're going to know more about the school even uh, to, to talk to him about, to get better answers, you know, his relationship with those coaches. I don't know the coaches at, at Georgia. I, I don't, I've never been to Athens. I don't know, you know, what to really ask about other than the general generic things. And again, Blair Angulo, who does a fantastic job, who covers that region uh, of Arizona, will do that for 24-7. So, yeah, the, the update went up. You know, as far as we know, he had a really good visit, enjoyed himself. Um, USC is still right there and, and still, uh, you know, pushing. They already got their official visit, but they're going to hope to get him on campus here Maybe this weekend on an unofficial, we're not sure. Obviously, with Elijah Page, if he's coming in officially, they play on the same team. There's potential there. We haven't confirmed that yet, though. Have not been able to confirm that. Now, you said play on the same team. So let's jump into some high school uh, musings, Gerard. Friday Night Lights. I, unfortunately, did not cover a high school game on Friday. I was traveling to the Portland area with Ryan Abraham, the publisher, to cover the Oregon State game. So I... Did not cover a game, as we mentioned at the top of the show. You did, but we did have some people out at other games as well. And I'll be back on the Friday Night Lights uh, beat uh, this week. But, Gerard, can you hit me with some of the games we had our people at? Yeah, we got down to Bakersfield versus Carlsbad down in uh, North County, San Diego. Our boy Jarrett uh, was able to uh, see that That's game. five stars it. only, Perez. Five stars only, but not this week. He got three-star Grant Bucky. And, uh, well, you know what? You're, you're, I'm wrong because Julian Sand 
the quarterback for Carlsbad was five on the other side only. of the football. Five, so what did I say? What did I say? There you go. Five stars only for Jarrett. He's on a roll. Uh, he didn't talk to Julian Sand to my knowledge, but he did watch him and say that, you know, again, it was another RPO game. Um, it's funny because from everything that I was reading, I got the sense that Liberty was the favorite in this game. And Carlsbad took it to him pretty good. 27-0, they shut out Liberty. Um, you know, didn't give Grant Bucky a whole lot of time to pass rush. Uh, he did get upfield. He did, I think, get maybe one hit on Julian Sand, and I think he got a penalty for it. So wasn't a great game for Liberty, unfortunately. We did get some ISO video, though, of Bucky, and we've been, you know, wanting to get that and uh, get just a little more on his progression, just development physically, certainly. He plays on both sides of the ball. He plays left tackle, and he plays defensive end for uh, Liberty. So um, he went both ways for them. And, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see that film come up on uscfootball.com here in uh, the next day or so, some ISO film, so you get to see a little more Grant Bucky, who we have not seen much of, uh, you know, over the offseason. But uh, one guy who kind of stood out a little bit was Zach Marshall, the uh, three-star athlete who's committed to Michigan, who's at Carlsbad. Evidently, he had a pretty good game. And uh, an interesting guy, maybe a guy to kind of uh, keep an eye on uh, here as, as the season progresses. He's rated as an athlete, uh, but Jarrett was uh, was pretty high on him, uh, said that uh, he really liked the way he played. And, and so he kind of uh, stood out a little bit. So um, that's a guy that, you know, 6'4", 220 could end up being maybe a tight end at the next level. Uh, maybe a defensive end. He's he's really sort of a tweener, jumbo athlete that's committed to Michigan right now. Um, we also hit the. I just wanted to say very oh, quickly. Oh. I've seen Marshall at multiple camps when I go down to the San Diego area. Physically, was like a dude when uh, he first got on the radar. I was at the camp. I think that Greg Biggins and I first saw him. Just looked like a dude. Played really really well. Big body. Yep. Committed to Michigan. And yeah, just a guy to keep an eye on down the line. Just wanted to say that. One of the other games that uh, we were able to check out was Calabasas playing uh, Crescent Valley. Uh, they blew them out 57-20. Uh, just getting a little Aaron Butler update, the four-star athlete recruit, 6'1", 180, uh, from Calabasas, been recruited since last year and committed. I, th I think he was, what, the first commit for the 2024 class? class? yeah. Yeah, so he remains committed to USC. We've got the recruiting update uh, on the site. You can check that out, but uh, still hearing from USC. Um Kind of wants to go both ways at USC, it seems like. And he's talking a lot about playing receiver, although not really in a lot of communication with Dennis Simmons, the receivers coach. I mean, Dante Williams is kind of his guy. So kind of have to think that USC is looking at him more as a potential defender. He had three receptions, 41 yards, and a touchdown uh, in that game, both rushing and receiving. Um, and that was kind of, uh, you know, outside of seeing Lafayette and, um, you know, uh, getting out. You know, that was the games that we covered and what we were able to get done uh, evaluation-wise this past week. Yeah, so not a super deep Friday Night Lights with me on the bench, but we'll have another big recruiting update or Friday Night Lights update. But, Gerard, let's actually just run through some top performers um, over the weekend. Obviously, there was the big Manny-Newman game. I know I was very excited about it. I thought I had found a live stream to watch the game, but it ended up being a scam so i was very disappointed about three thousand dollars so if anyone wants to start a gofundme for that i would appreciate it but lots of things happening you know zach branch four catches 55 yards and a touchdown jacoby lane the usc wide receiver commit four catches for 75 yards and two scores then tackett curtis had 73 yards on the ground and a rushing touchdown in their big win and including a monster hit monster hit on one of uh, arch manning's receivers uh, he did have a fumble and a muff punt that led to an easy Newman score. But but take away that and 
Manny pretty much dominated this uh, the battle of the two-way powers uh, down there in Louisiana. Yeah, we couldn't get any defensive statistics for Tackett Curtis, but you know everybody was there was tweeting about you know how well that defense played against Newman and and how well he played. I mean, he was just uh, a playmaker out there. You know, he's so violent at the point of of of, of contact. He's a guy that can really like he's a momentum shifter type of defender. You know, he can make those type of hits that it just gets everybody pumped up, everybody fired up. And he played against uh, Newman that way and um, made some some really big plays of just from that standpoint of just, you know, his tackles and open field. And, um, you know, not a surprising result. Uh, I don't know. Uh, do you know what um, Arch Manning's statistics ended up being? I'm looking at it. I'm someone tweeted them out. I'm trying to. Yeah, I'm sure it was in some you know article or something like that. For whatever reason, Newman doesn't keep his statistics on their max prep space, so it makes it a little harder. You have to go digging for it. But um, yeah, that was really the first team that Newman had played that was really any good. And um, yeah, they got they got they got handled pretty well. Uh, I thought Manny played uh, a really good game from everything I could hear defensively, and that was kind of the difference in the game. Um, nothing, no, like, you know, gigantic, crazy games that I was able to see. Uh, I, I know the running backs, both, uh, Quinton Joyner and, uh, Marion Peterson both had good games, but their statistics were not updated, uh, on max prep. So I wasn't able to get them. I know, uh, Quinton Joyner was just coming away from a 200 yard, uh, rushing game, which was his second of the year. So he's putting up some really good totals for Manor high school out there in Texas. And, um, you know, you look at the two back sets that USC is using and you look at those two running backs and you say, man, that's, it's, it's a really good fit. Uh, USC is probably going to lose both of their, their senior running backs uh, after this year. So they're going to have to interject some talent. Both those guys look like they're not only talented running backs in terms of vision and, and, and what they do, you know, breaking tackles, but they are physical. They're the guys that I think you're not going to worry too much about putting out there as freshmen. And, and one of those things, you know, we talk about development, talk about Raleigh Brown. Raleigh Brown hasn't had that game yet where he's really like just blown up, had that really spectacular run. In the first game, he had a couple of really good runs and, you know, he had some flashes. But just in terms of physicality, he's developed so well. You know, he's a guy that I think, you know, we look at him at the end of last year and you would question, OK, you want to get out, get him out there in space. You want to get him in certain situations, but he's not necessarily an every day, every down back physically. You know, he is not necessarily there yet. But then you come fast forward at the end of, uh, you know, spring going into fall camp over the summer. I, I think you look at him physically and say, yeah, he's he can play college ball, you know, and that's that's physically with the weight room training and the nutrition program. You know, that's a big part of this player development that USC has to be there competing with Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama. And when you see a guy like Willie Brown, you know, always had the lower body strength and he, and he looked like that guy, but the upper body strength now. Because, you know, when you're talking about pass protection, you're, you're taking on a safety or a linebacker that's blitzing. you got to be that guy that's not only just mentally going to put your helmet in there, but you physically have to be able to do it too. So that, I think, with the two freshmen that would be coming in, and Peterson and Joyner, I think you're okay with that. I don't, I don't think either of those guys are too frail to be able to step in and play right away and get some carries and take the punishment. Uh uh, Arch Manning was held to eight of twenty for eighty yards and two touchdown passes. Drug. Yikes! <laughs> Shush. Yeah, that's uh, that's not Shush. good. But, but that's kind of par for the course. I mean, we've seen some stat lines from him 
that are not very impressive. So, you know, he's uh, the pin. Well, the you're, talk, you're talking about that jamboree. You're talking about that yeah, jamboree. Yeah, jamboree. I know. I got okie doped on that. But still, <laughs> I don't – I mean, I don't – he had that really good comeback win, I think, the week before. Against the 5A like 50, school, I believe, yeah. Yeah, like 56 points, 58 points or something of that nature. But I've gotten this sense. I've read some of the other stat lines. They've been pretty mediocre. And so, you know, like I said, uh, he's the peristyle's favorite piñata. Uh, the, the the flat earther is not necessarily wowing people uh, this season. And I just wanted to note that uh, Tackett Curtis is expected to take an unofficial visit this weekend for the Arizona State game. Uh, Manny has a bye week, and they plan on – that's been their plan kind of going into the season. They use that bye week to come out to check out the Arizona State game. So we will follow up on that. But Tackett Curtis, big TC, expected to be in the Coliseum this weekend. Now, just a couple of smaller talking points before we get to our our break. Gerard, uh, Provo, four-star offensive tackle Spencer Fano did not have USC in his final four. That is not a huge shock with the way USC has been recruiting Elijah Page and still going after Caleb Lomu with those guys. That just seems like, you know, uh, uh, a thing that uh, – writing on the wall. USC has been sort of very much on the outside for Spencer Fano. They did get him on an uh, unofficial visit at one point. I believe that was during the spring or in the summer, but never seemed like he was super high on this staff's radar, probably like a plan C kind of deal. But USC not in his top four, not a super shocker there. Anything you want to say on that? No, that doesn't surprise us. It did seem like USC was on the outside looking in for him. And I I don't know if that was just, him not really feeling USC. Obviously, this is a kid that's been recruited by Oregon, and Oregon was, you know, the perceived leader early on in his recruitment. And so, you know, you're probably getting a lot of negative recruiting from Mario Cristobal about, you know, USC's offensive line and, and certainly what was going on in terms of the player development off the offensive line and even the offense. You know, that's been something, you know, do you want to play in the air raid? That's not an NFL offense sort of thing. And so I, I don't know if it was him just not feeling USC so much, because I did get that vibe that, you know, just in terms of visits, it was sort of pulling teeth to get him even out here. Um, so I don't know if this was so much USC saying, hey, we don't like him. It was just more of, you know, he was interested in other schools. So, I mean, BYU is definitely there. Oregon will, will continue to be a big player for him because, you know, they they do have the Spencer Fano play, Chris. I don't know if you're aware oh, of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we sh- we each need our own plays. We need some plays on this <laughs> podcast. We need the Hurricane play and then we need the 10K. I'm Maybe when the NCAA uh, 2023 Oh, we'll, I like we'll, it. We'll, we'll have some custom playbooks, and we'll share those uh, with, the, with the fans. But, um, yeah, Spencer Fano not uh, going to end up at USC as it looks. Uh, that's not a surprise. And the second kind of quick note, or, I mean, I don't know how quick of a discussion we're going to get into, but Los Alamitos five-star defensive tackle, 2024 defensive lineman. T.A. Cunningham has been finally ruled Eligible to play by the CAF at Los Alamitos, the uh, transfer from the state of Georgia. Just a quick applause. That's been a long sort of battle with CIF for T.A. Cunningham. You know, he's practically a little, uh, he was homeless, you know, staying on teammates' couches, you know, NIL swindled, the Coach Frog situation, just a lot of things going on. And, you know, it it was becoming a very, big talking point in high school football in Southern California, just let TA play free TA, all those kind of things. But finally he is eligible and he will be making his debut uh, this Friday. And I believe we're going to try to send a uh, five star only Jared Perez there to check out this, uh, the big uh, war daddy 
uh, out in uh, Los Al. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's good news for him. I'm, I'm happy mm-hmm. for the kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had to sit out those five games, which is the normal sort of hardship where you have to sit out games if you don't change your address and transfer schools. That's, that's the normal thing. You know, that's part of the reason why, you know, some kids have to sit out. It's not anything other than just a standard sort of policy that CIF has. Obviously, in this particular case, the kid moved and changed addresses. He came from Georgia. Um, but I think there was some, you know, some things that CIF was uncomfortable with in terms of maybe all the transfers that were going to Los Alamitos. And when you start talking about getting kids from out of state, you start talking about super teams like IMG. And there was a statement made in the leaked email. And I, and I don't know the validity of this because, you know, I, 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 don't really know the sourcing of the email, but it was said something to the effect that um, CIF is just afraid for players' safety with the super teams. Now, obviously, that granted a lot of ire from certain coaches and fans of high schools seeing you know, what Modern Day and St. John Bosco have been able to do in accumulating talent. Now, that talent, for the most part, is regional, um, but it nevertheless – it's a bunch of good players playing on the same team. And so, yeah, it's a little different in terms of going out and grabbing guys from other places. And IMG is banned actually from playing in the state of California. And Mm -hmm. I believe teams that are under the CIF banner are banned from playing there. So you would probably forfeit uh, games if you actually scheduled IMG. And we know that, you know, in the past, modern days played them Centennial played them and played them very tough. Um, Modern day beat them, but Nevertheless, this, you know, CIF doesn't feel comfortable, I guess, with there being that type of academy or team that would be built in Southern California. There was talk that there was going to be an IMG type academy built in the Valley a, a few years ago. I actually had a conversation with Craig Niver, the old uh, safeties coach who was uh, at USC under Clay Helton. And um, we were kind of talking about that. And I had heard from a source that I had CIF that that's probably not going to happen sort of because of this, because CIF had already banned. IMG and they were kind of pushing towards not having these super teams sort of built out. Now, you know, legalities aside, um, you know, is that a good thing or bad thing? I I think that's sort of, you know, water in the bridge, just moving forward in terms of for Los Alamitos, what this means for them, it means a lot because you're getting a, a, I mean, you're getting a five-star defensive lineman, which at the college level is a huge deal, uh, uh, let alone at at the high school level. You know, I think going back to that game where they played American Heritage, it would have been a lot closer if they would have had T.A. Cunningham in that game, 100%. I mean, it probably would have been a couple touchdowns closer, if not more. So it's a huge impact for them. Uh, they're probably going to continue to dominate their league, and it's just going to be interesting to see where they get placed in the CIF Southern Section playoffs and then the impact that he makes seeing the teams that they're going to play there. So um, it's interesting. Uh, it's exciting. Like I said, it's good to see that he's back playing football. I know he's got to be excited. You know, what does it mean for his recruitment? I mean, the fact that he's in Southern California and potentially could remain in Southern California is going to be very big for USC. Um, his NIL representation is, is something that obviously comes into question because there was some tweets that referenced Michael Caspino. And we've talked about him in the past, uh, some of the comments that he made about collectives and uh, he was criticizing the collective at the University of Florida. And he was going back and forth with someone else who was 
uh, involved in the, the collective at Florida or the NIL branding at Florida and saying that, you know, it was Bush League and it was run by a bunch of millennial millennials, excuse me. And, um, you know, it sort of uh, it, it, it sort of indirectly kind of took a shot at USC and sort of their approach um, to NIL as well. And so his name has been mentioned and tied in with T.A. Cunningham. And I, I'm just not necessarily sure, you know, what that means. I, I kind of have to find out more about that. Um, because certainly uh, that individual, uh, Michael Caspino, didn't seem to have a, a, a shining opinion of uh, the, the way USC was going about NIL. Again, not calling out USC directly, but sort of indirectly. And I, I believe the person that was going back and forth with him on Twitter is also involved in, in some of the things that uh, USC has been doing um, you know, from an NIL standpoint uh, in conjunction with Boulevard. So. You know, the whole thing is, uh, it's very interesting. We talked about NIL a lot early in the season, really preseason, you know, how this thing was going to impact recruiting. We're at a lull right now with it because not a lot, it's not that that big push of commitments right before the season. But goodness gracious, it's going to come up again here uh, as we get closer to Thanksgiving. And I, I cringe <laughs> at, at the craziness that's going to happen uh, once it does uh, sort of kick in full, full gear and, and crunch time comes along and early signing day, you know, you could see it over the horizon. Uh, we're going to see a lot of crazy stuff, even though TA Cunningham is a 2024 commit. Um, I think, you know, with the 2023 class, we're going to get a little bit of a primer to see what the heck is, uh, you know, going to happen here with NIL and the impact and how crazy it's going to get. I, I think it's going to be wild. I, I think all this talk about now oh, these guys committed here and, you know, this collective uh, paid him this much uh, ahead of time and blah, blah, blah. I think it's, potentially all out the window and it's going to be wild and dramatic. Sounds like it's been perfect timing to start a USC recruiting podcast drug. What do you think? <laughs> perfect timing. Yeah. I mean, we got to, uh, we just got to have to take a, take a step back and see how it unravels a bit. You know, it, it's, it's one of those things where you want to try to get ahead of it and, and, and try to predict some things and see what's going to happen. Everybody wants to be the smartest guy in the room. They can say, hey, you know, I knew this was all going to happen three months ago. But the truth of the matter is we don't know. The coaches don't exactly know. And certainly the compliance offices at these colleges don't exactly know because everybody has taken a little bit of a different approach to how to ha handle NIL. So um, it's, it's interesting to just see the differences in the pivoting that we've seen just over the summer. You know, we saw Alabama losing recruits and, and they had a certain approach. And that changed, man. That changed in July. <laughs> that changed real quick. All of a sudden, they were getting recruits left and right. It was a different story behind the scenes in terms of how Alabama was aggressively pursuing, pursuing NIL. And, and, and then, you know, USC's approach to doing things and, and whether that's the right way to kind of have a, a buffer or proxy between yourselves and the boosters and the university. Um, you know, what USC's done on paper, I think it's, it's very progressive and it, and, it, and it looks good and it's understandable. But, you know, is it the most efficient way? Uh, particularly with recruits, you know, not so much the guys on the team already. It's more about the recruiting process and how fluid it moves. You know, do the collectives have an advantage because it's basically, you know, boosters making the decisions who they want to try to entice with money, which is technically illegal according to the NCAA, but certainly seems to be rampant at this point right now. Rampant indeed. And with that, Gerard, we're going to take our break for this show. And when we come back, we're going to talk about less high school football and more college football. We're going to go into USC's win over Oregon State on the road. We're going to talk about 
what happened in the college football landscape, some losses, some firings, some surprising teams in the Pac-12. We're going to talk a little bit of all that. Then we're going to get into the high school football schedule. And then I got a whole bunch of questions uh, for us to tackle. So, Gerard, you ready for that break? Let's go. Okay, we'll be right back after this break. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. (laughs) Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. All right, Gerard. How was that break in a oven that you're in right now? The break was good, man. The, the break music, it pumped me up, man. I was doing jumping jacks. I'm ready to go. I'm sweating, but I'm ready to go. I just took a sip of some hot water. Uh, was not ready for that. I thought it was at least going to be well, room temp. <laughs> I was going to be like room temperature, but it's room been temperature IQ. Long. Room temperature IQ, but it's uh, yeah, I've been sitting here so long that it's uh, it's 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 kind of hot. So that wasn't cool, but that's okay. We'll, we'll get we'll get past it again, man. It's uh, you know, giving me flashbacks of fall camp, baby. Fall camp, indeed. Now USC, Oregon State, a game where USC's defense came to play. The offense did not – the offense did not come to play, excuse me. And until the final – to the final fourth quarter when they needed some big plays, they, they made them in the end. But the defense really carried the water in this 17-14 win over Oregon State in a battle of two unbeatens in Research Stadium, half a stadium, very hostile, uh, a lot of vitriol being going out from Oregon State fans. It was crazy down there on the field, Gerard. Not a lot of people got to watch this game, I'm assuming, because it was on Pac-12 Network. I know you were watching it, but what was your initial takeaways just from watching the game and kind of some of those positives that you saw? Well, from a recruiting angle, I immediately thought of the connection of Damani Jackson getting his first snaps mm-hmm. on the road, hostile environment, true freshman, coming off a knee injury, 
And Dalen Austin, from what we understand, being in the stands there watching his brother, <laughs> who is a starting quarterback for Oregon State. So when you want to talk about rubber meeting the road with <laughs> how the team plays on the field and personnel decisions and recruiting, there you go. I mean, I thought that – and listen, I'm not trying to speak for the USC coaching staff. I'm not speaking for Mr. Dante Williams, Mr. Elite Recruiter. But knowing that he's an elite recruiter and knowing that USC is very aware, I think that was definitely very coincidental. But it worked out very well because Damani played well. Damani went out there, played physical. He uh, got a couple he, tackles. A couple tackles. He had a really nice cover on a sort of comeback route to the tight end where uh, Nolan rolls out, I think, to the right side. And they had that tight end sneak kind of out, kind of releases and does that sneak down the sideline to try to get that score. And they've been very successful with that play in the past. And Damani covered it like a blanket. He took that tight end right out of bounds. And so, you know, he played well. So that was great for USC just in terms of on the field and, uh, you know, getting some production from him. But also when you think of Dalen Austin being in those stands and USC still in contact with Dalen Austin, the uh, six foot one, uh, what would you say, Chris, about 175, 178 pounds. He's, he's probably just shy, I guess, of, Maybe 180, 185. Yeah, that that's that's that sounds fair. That sounds about right. He's um, you know, one of the top uh four-star rated cornerbacks on the West Coast. And a guy that I think, you know, he committed early to LSU. And USC was, I think, still trying to figure out their board a bit. You know, you had those summer commitments, uh, you you had, you know, so that, that process of bringing in those out-of-state guys, you know, trying to get your foot in the door with some of those guys, see, you know, the traction recruits from the guys you're gonna close with. And um, I don't think they were quite ready to go full court press on Austin. And I, and I don't know necessarily that they're doing that yet either right now. Um, but with the board is sort of, you know, sort of filtering out a bit. Um, he's still being recruited by USC and still in contact with USC. His uncle's Willie McGinnis uh, still has a lot of ties to USC. I just wouldn't be surprised if he pops up at USC for a visit or two. Yeah, that's definitely something that's uh, floated around there. I'm actually think I'm going to go see him uh, this week on Friday. But when he first committed to LSU, I was told specifically that this is the most wide open uh, commitment kid you're going to see. He's a guy who's going to very much enjoy the process. So, yeah, I expect him to be at multiple USC games in the future. Obviously got to see one up close on the road. I'm going to talk to him about that. But definitely a guy that USC is very much in the thick of with Dante Williams, with those already guys that they have there at Long Beach Poly, that pipeline school. Just so much going on for them in in that regard. But overall, the secondary played really, really well. Uh, four picks on the game, uh, one by uh, the angry giraffe, as some people like to call him, Eric Gentry. Uh, Makai Blackman, just a beautiful pick. Max Williams, the game ceiling pick. Sierra Wright, former top 100 prospect, Got his first interception on a big one. And, yeah, the secondary, which had some questions going in, just being a very young unit. People didn't know what Blackman was going to look like, but he looks like a legit number one cornerback. And just playing really, really well. And that's something that you've seen glimpses of uh, this season. But that's probably their most complete game of the year. And just something that uh, Has USC, in general either side of the ball this season. Has there been a better catch than Makai Blackman's interception catch against Tyjon Lindsey? 
Ooh, good question. I'm trying to think. You're talking just in terms of like difficulty. I'm talking Jordan Addison, Mario Williams. I don't know if there is a better. That catch was ridiculous. First and foremost, he basically ran the route for the receiver across the field. To my knowledge, and I'm, I'm trying to remember, I think they ended up lining up to, um, the left side for the defense, and Tyjon Lindsay ends up running all the way across the field to try to make that play. I'm not 100% sure of that. I, I have to look at the replay, but I felt like Makai Blackman usually ends up on that other side, and the ball where it was thrown ended up you know, across the field uh, almost at the pylon. He made that catch, and it was like it – was, it was just a ridiculous catch. I mean, he fought Lindsay right there at the end for it. Lindsay was – you know, I think he realized this – cornerback is on top of the route <laughs> he's gonna make the catch and started you know hand fighting with him and he still was able to pull it down it, it was one of the better catches that i've seen just across the board for usc this season yeah i, I can't think of i haven't seen like there hasn't been that you know jaw-dropping catch there's been, been some good catches some big plays but you know jordan addison had that uh 75 yard touchdown run but that was just a pretty basic catch with the excellent spin move at the end to stay alive yeah, it was um, a spin move that was kind of nice. Yeah, that was that was the catch, more impressive part. Yeah, yeah, the pylon catch against Fresno State was a really good catch, but I don't think it was as good as that catch that Makai Black did. That the, to to track that ball in the air and you're the defender, um, and you've got you know the receiver who's obviously got the right to the ball more than you do at that point, uh, at least in the Pac-12. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't think the rules are written by that, but in the Pac-12. You just got to be very, very careful. And and he did grab a little bit. I think he grabbed yeah. uh, Tajon Lindsay's like his, 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 his tower, what have you. Um, but I mean, it was a, it was a, a genuine good play at the ball. And um, yeah, that was just uh that was a great play. And like you said, in terms of the highlight plays, listen, Oregon state secondary played lights out. I mean, they really put the kibosh on this highly thought of receiving core that USC has. But on the other end, who got the who got the Sports Center highlights? Who got the you know Matt Loves Ball YouTube highlights? It's USC because they had four interceptions. I mean, one of them was from Eric Gentry, but three for the secondary. And this is continuing to be a defense that you know they're getting sort of uh, phrased as opportunistic. I've heard that a few times. Uh, I think Yogi Roth had called them opportunistic a couple times during the broadcast. But they're forcing turnovers. This is not these teams are just throwing bad balls left and right in their bad quarterbacks. It's a lot of tip passes by the defenders and, and making plays in the balls after you tip a pass. Or it's the defensive line that's getting in the face of the quarterback, forcing bad throws. Or it's you know somebody hitting somebody and knocking the ball loose and getting a fumble recovery. So that's a little different. That's something that you know you're seeing more physicality there. And you're seeing more awareness, I think, just with the defense and that is what's turning these turnovers and the amount of turnovers, man, that is going to get defensive players and defensive recruits excited. Everybody's talking about the yardage given and this and that. And I knew in this game that USC's defense would play better than people thought against the run. Because if you watch this team closely, you've seen them progress against traditional run offense sets. They've been much better. They start off the season horribly against rice, but you saw a huge, a huge, progression versus Stanford because clearly they had prepared against Stanford for Stanford to kind of run the ball straight at them right and so again in the goal line in the red zone when Stanford tried to run straight at them they stopped Stanford 
it was really like that mesh read and sort of other plays where they gassed them. They had that big, you know, that tight end uh, end around play, which uh, which was it's horrible. I mean, that that should have been stopped. It really was right there for Shane Lee to stop. And then he didn't tackle him. And the guy ends up getting 50 yard run on him, a tight end running 50 yards on you. Yeah. People are going to look at that and say your defense is slow and they're bad. But really, truthfully, the stuff that's the kind of straight at you, they played really well uh, on the goal line. They, they, they contested everything. Um, so I thought that they would play better um, defensively against those sets. And they did that. You Oregon didn't have Oregon State, excuse me, didn't have a hundred yard rusher, which I think most people pregame would have predicted 100 percent. They would have thought that Finnick would have run for 100 yards for sure. And um, they, they were able to keep them from running for 100 yards. So, yeah, it was a good performance defensively. And I think, you know, just from a recruiting angle, that continues to help. The, the turnovers already, like I said before, from a recruiting perspective, seeing that they're watching a lot of Sports Center highlights, that in itself is, is going to help. The linebackers getting their hands on passes, making interceptions. It's getting linebacker recruits excited. Um, and now in this game, I think the secondary playing and stepping up, and, and a lot of young guys stepping up. Like you said, Sierra Wright, freshman. You know, he's a redshirt freshman. Uh, you've got uh, Blackman there, who's a senior. So he's the old head of that group. But you got a lot of Jalen Smith playing now. We saw a lot more Jalen Smith in this game than we saw um, – uh, uh, why am I blinking on his name? Latrell uh, McCutcheon. Uh, McCutcheon. Um, you know, we haven't seen any Alford. So Xavier Alford hasn't really been in the games very much. We did see a little bit of um, – the uh, Ohio State transfer, Bryson Shaw, Bryson Shaw, that, which was interesting. Uh, you see, we see a little special teams of him, but this is the first game where he got some rotation, and so that was a little interesting. The rotation, just in general, seemed to solidify a little bit up front. I felt like uh, Dejon Benton, along with Brandon Peely, uh, Tui Tupolotu on the end uh, with Solomon Bird, seemed to be a pretty solid front for them. That seems to be a front that both is pretty decent against the run and they have enough upfield athleticism where they can make some plays in the offensive backfield. So we'll see if USC starts to riff a little bit more off of that front instead of rotating as much. Um, but that was, I think one of the reasons why we didn't see as much Corey Foreman. We didn't even see as, as much Nick Figueroa either. Uh, people, you know, didn't really see uh, to mention that too much, but he didn't play a whole lot in this game either. I think they sort of settled in a little bit with that front four uh, and you saw a little more also Shane Lee in this game being a three a three down linebacker. They didn't bring him out as much on third down plays. And I actually thought against the pass, he played pretty damn well. I, I you think said maybe, this was a big game for him. Yeah, Last I week, felt you so. Said this was a game for him. I, I think he was a little still underwhelming in some of the run fits, um, but I think he was better being out there longer and not necessarily having to rotate him with Goforth or somebody else. Um, I think maybe. You know, I'll get some teams, certainly, you know, that are going to really try to spread it out and pass the ball a lot. I, you probably don't want him out there um, against a bunch of, you know, little slot receivers. But I think because Oregon State was a little more of a sort of uh, traditional, they're not a pro-style offense, but they certainly use more pro-style sets with their tight ends and they have some lead blockers. Um, that benefited having Shane Lee in there more. And I think the defense benefited from having just a, a little more solid rotation of guys you know, this is sort of our first team instead of like that constant rotation. And I think we should also give going back to the offense, we need to give Travis Dye some flowers for a very impressive game where USC did not have really anything going in that passing game with Caleb Williams, but they put it on the little man's shoulders 
and he came through with you know another hundred yard game. The kind of stabilizing uh, force on that offense. The only real real guy who was making consistent plays had the huge touchdown in the fourth quarter to put them ahead initially uh, before the game winner with Jordan Addison, Caleb Williams, but Travis Dye running like a grown man uh, out there, Gerard. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, that's, that's a building block of culture right there. Travis Dye. I think the way he plays, he checks almost every box for you as a football player, just in general. It sort of has like, you know, with Max Williams on the other side of the ball, he, he just checks every box. He's not super big and he's not super fast. That nope. probably speed would be the biggest thing. I mean, if he was a guy that really had the breakaway speed, I mean, he, he, he wouldn't be playing at USC right now. He'd already be in the NFL. Um, but he has everything. It's and especially the intangibles that I think Lincoln Riley really just, you know, you have to sort of praise him as much as possible and put him on a pedestal and say, listen, this is what we need from our offense as a whole. Everybody needs to have the Travis Dye mi- uh, mindset of uh, running and getting that fourth and two. You know, when the when when the defense was expecting and they were looking for it, USC continuing to still be able to run the ball. There was some instances, you know, down at the goal line when they had their back to the goal line where they weren't able to run the ball. And, you know, one thing that's still a little frustrating, I think, for the fans, and it's understandable because I watch it, they could definitely run the ball more. I mean, Travis Dye, I think, you know, had seven yards of carry this game. He had nine yards of carry the last game. I think both of the running backs, he and Austin Jones, had nine yards of carry the last game. They could run the ball more. It seems like Lincoln Raleigh wants the, identi- the, the identity of the offense to still be pass first. Mm-hmm. But defenses are giving them the run, and they have the running backs in the offensive line to run the ball. I mean, one of these days they're going to run the ball three times in a row, and they're going to literally you know, have 80 yards on, on three runs. <laughs> Um, but it's just, you know, they, they, they've fell short of that. They're, they're not doing it quite yet. Um, so that's something that perhaps is a little bit of a negative in that, that, you know, they're not committing to the run as much as they could, but certainly the fact that they're still having a hundred yard plus runner, um, is huge for the offense. And again, like I said, it's great for the running back recruits, you know, they're going to love it, but it's also indirectly huge for offensive line recruiting. And I think that's definitely a big recruiting angle. And I would say offensively, one other aspect that's a positive for them is the fact that Caleb Williams struggled and had a bad game. But the communication and I think, you know, this is a little more of a subtle thing that a guy like Malachi Nelson will pick up on. Maybe not other guys like DJ Lagway or other quarterbacks that are not watching USC as closely. But certainly a guy like Melakai Nelson, who's a student of the game, he's committed to USC. So he's invested in watching this, these little things that happen at the quarterback position. But I think Lincoln Riley's relationship with Caleb Williams and a lot of the communication that went on on the sidelines was very big. And recruits like Melakai Nelson will watch that. You have seen over the years, especially with Clay Helton, so much where the quarterbacks are just on the island on the sidelines. They're having a bad game. They come off the field. And they're just standing on the sidelines by themselves. And you got teammates that come along and say, hey, man, keep, keep your head up, keep going. And it's like, where's the head coach? Where's Clay Helton, Mr. Quarterback Coach extraordinaire? Where's, where's Graham Harrell? Oh, he's in the box. Like, who is talking <laughs> to this quarterback trying to, hey, what are you seeing out there? You know, what can we do to adjust the line fits? What can we do to adjust? Do we need to roll you out a little more? You know, what, what coverage are you seeing? Hey, this is what we're seeing on the sidelines. This is what we're seeing from the box. This is who was open, you know, and you don't want to crowd your quarterback when he's having a bad game, but you do want to get him and get into his face when he needs it. 
and say, hey, listen, we need you, okay? You need to talk him up. You need to coach him up. And that's exactly what Lincoln Riley was doing on the sidelines with Caleb Williams. And I think that's a big deal for quarterback development. You're seeing it real time. You know, you don't necessarily get to see it so much in practice. You're seeing it real time on the sidelines. And some coaches have a philosophy. Listen, I don't coach on Saturdays. I don't coach on Friday. I coach, you know, during the week. That's that's when we're going to get better. It's not going to be during the game. But I think that's wrong. I think that's that's a bad way of looking at it. I think you coach any opportunity you can. Anytime there's a lesson to be learned and there's something that can be said that a player can benefit from, you have to say it, you have to do it. And I think that's what Lincoln Riley was doing. And I think for a guy like, like again, for specifically Malachi Nelson, I think watching that is big. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why Lincoln Riley has produced not one, but two Heisman winning quarterbacks because of stuff like that and that communication and things like the small things like that on the sideline definitely wasn't his best game. But as Lincoln Riley said at the end, Caleb Williams stepped up when they needed him. Uh, that game winning touchdown, Jordan Addison, he said there's not five QBs in the country that can make that throw. And for Caleb to do that in that moment when they needed him most uh, on the road in a hostile environment, was just that shows why he's a guy. So big, uh, big moment for them. Big uh Playmakers coming through in the end and, you know, this weekend against Arizona State, this could be a get right game for that offense, you know, refocus, recenter and go out there and beat the crap out of a struggling ASU team. Now, just for some quick negatives, I know we we mentioned the passing offense, you mentioned a little bit about Corey Foreman suited up was, I guess, technically the backup, but did not play a single snap, I believe. Uh, So that's a interesting thing. And that we've talked about how practice is super important for Lincoln Riley and the staff is what you do in practice is what's going to get you on the field on Saturdays. So if you're not getting on the field on Saturdays, what does that tell you about the week of practice? And to my knowledge, he is not hurt. I've not heard anything about him being hurt. So I do not believe it was an injury, but just something where the coaches did not, you know, decide to put him in and, and put him out there in that in that situation. Uh, we talk. I feel like we talk about Corey Foreman all the time on this podcast, Dre. Well, he was the former number one recruit that came to USC and, and sort of bought in uh, with USC in that shortened season. And, you know, that was Dante Williams coming in and, you know, making an immediate impact as a recruiter. And, you know, USC fans want to see Corey Foreman succeed at USC because everybody knows. I mean, that is something that helps um, continue that pipeline, if you will, right? You've got Gary Bryant, who's going to probably transfer at the end of the year. And now you got Corey Foreman, another quarter centennial player who's, uh, you know, riding the bench and, you know, you have to start to look at his mental uh, mindset right now. And if, you know, he starts thinking about, ah, oh, you know, I could do it better somewhere else. And, and again, it's a superficial sort of negative recruiting angle that other schools can take. It's not something that USC can't recruit over or around if you're winning a bunch of games and you're developing other players. It, it's certainly something that, you know, Coach New is going to sit down with his guys that are his targets and say, listen, this is the story. This is how it really went down. Um, and so this is, this is what we're looking for in football players going forward. Um, but nevertheless, again, it's sort of like a superficial sort of thing where you have those five-star guys that don't end up playing up to their talent level. And it, you know, it's something that other coaches will say, well, you know what, the development over there is not this, not that. I just, I know it because I've heard it 
I've understood it. We talked about it already with Amon Marshall and sort of his journey at USC. So I don't want to rehash it, but it is something to just keep note of. And it's just something that, um, you know, people obviously on the peristyle are asking about Corey Foreman. Again, didn't ask so much about Nick Figueroa, who's been a, a very good player for USC, very productive player for USC. He didn't play a whole lot. I think really, if you're taking the positive spin on it, it's been the development of Solomon Bird. That's the main reason why you haven't seen as much rotation from either of those players. You've got Solomon Bird out there making plays. You have some solidity there to that defensive front now. It seems like with that rotation, uh, maybe a little Stanley uh, Tufu in there as well. I think, you know, that USC starting to kind of find what's been consistent for them. And up front, consistency is really a big thing. You cannot have guys just miss their run fits or get blown off the ball or what have you, get too wide on their pass rush and let a, a, a scrambling quarterback just run off tackle on you. Um, that's sort of the things that you want to see more consistency with, a little more distant play. And we've seen Solomon Bird uh, do that. So I think the ascension of Solomon Bird and his performances have been partly uh, to blame for some of this, if you want to coin it that way. That's how you want to coin it, Gerard. You do what you need to do. You do what you need to do. And very quickly, Pac-12 never game, 930. You had something to say about this? <laughs> Just, well, I mean, it's, it's certainly, if we're looking at recruiting angles, it doesn't help USC. It's not a national game. Um, you know, it, it works both ways, though. It's a two-way street. You could argue, you know, it wasn't the best game for USC offensively. It wasn't the best game for their playmakers. You know, Caleb Williams didn't have a great game, so on and so forth. But the defense had a great game. So you would want to, you know, be able to show people, hey, man, this defense played really well against a good offensive opponent on the road. Um, but, you know, obviously when you've got a game that starts at 930 at night Eastern time uh, against Oregon State, which is not necessarily a ranked opponent. Uh, yeah, the out-of-state recruiting for this one, I, I don't think many kids saw that game, uh, certainly not live. So from that standpoint, exposure-wise, Pac-12 Network, not you doing USC a lot of favors recruiting. And with that, we're going to wrap up the uh, recruiting angle, another edition of that. Gerard, thank you so much. You do a lot of talking on that, so I appreciate it. Well, you do a lot of talking on this entire podcast, but I appreciate you because that's your thing. You obviously have those. Uh, you have that recruiting angle first thing up on Sunday, uh, taking a look at the game. So always a pleasure to have that up super early. I know the fans uh, on the board really appreciate that. Now we're going to – we've been doing this. I know it's not – technically USC related, but we have been jumping around college football to other games, you know, teams that USC has is going up against recruiting battles and that players that USC wants to maybe flip a little bit. So we do touch on other scores across the country. Uh, Miami lost the big one to middle Tennessee uh, university 45, 31. I believe they are now two and two ASU fired Herm Edwards uh, Washington uh, looking like a real maybe contender in the Pac-12 this season. They're in the top 25. They're undefeated. Oregon survived uh, Washington State, who had a classic Kuganit, uh letting a, I believe it was a 22-point lead, I believe that's correct, uh, fade away in the final, in the second half of that game, including a defensive touchdown to really ice it. So that was a brutal loss for them and a great comeback win for Oregon. Texas Tech, uh, Cuck, Texas, uh, 37-34, uh, got the best of the Longhorns. Uh, Sarkeesian, another disappointing loss. And Cal, 
upset Arizona, which was a fun team to is a fun team to watch this season with all the weapons that they have. But Cal pulling out a big win. Jaden Ott, a guy who USC was sort of recruiting there at the end with the Dante Williams interim head coaching uh, era, uh, leading the Pac-12 in rushing yards. I believe he has over 400 yards. A a Norco guy, Gerard. Is that correct? He is a Norco guy. Norco guy like one Travis Dye. I think the key is just to recruit Norco uh, running backs. That seems to be the uh, a winning formula. But he is playing really really well for Cal, and they got a big win. So. Gerard, who is what is the most interesting result that you saw over the weekend, or where do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, obviously Miami going down to Middle Tennessee State is yeah. interesting. I mean, That's there's a big... been a lot of backlash from that, and we know USC has recruited some of those Miami football players, and Miami has uh, recruited very well. Uh, they've been a very sort of uh, outlier in the collective era of NIL and have benefited from that quite a bit. You know, that five-star IMG offensive tackle, Francis Maragoa, committed there over USC. Um, guy that maybe USC wants to continue to have contact with. And Fans are still know, holding on to that one, Gerard. Fans are <laughs> still holding on to that we, one. We knew, listen, Miami is trying to rebuild their program to some extent as well, just like USC. Uh, but the difference, I think, right now, when you lose to Middle Tennessee State, that is a step back. You can't really argue about rebuilding and losing to a team that is clearer inferior to you all across the board talent-wise. That's it's, it's hard. That, that's a real black eye for Mario Cristobal, and certainly the the aftermath of it is really looking bad. I mean, there's just the, the terms of nobody showing up to their games. Um, you know, the game management, some of the criticisms we saw of him at Oregon rearing their ugly heads. Yeah, that's that's one that's just interesting because there have been some head-to-head battles uh, with Miami here, um, and there would be more, you know, going forward. But as of right now, it seems like Malagoa would be the only guy that USC might want to continue to recruit to see if there's, uh, you know, a- a- any shaken loose there uh, from uh, his commitment to the Hurricanes. So that one was interesting just in terms of the results of the game and how bad Miami looked. I and mean, Miami just, damn, they, they, they got, they got beat pretty good um, by a team that uh, they, they, they shouldn't really have been. Uh, it just shouldn't have been competitive, quite frankly, at home, you know, against that team. Uh, certainly we saw a similar thing with Texas A&M. I think Texas A&M got caught looking ahead at Appalachian state, which I think is actually a decent team. Um, but they were looking ahead to Arkansas and some of these other games that they were playing. And they got caught a little more, uh, certainly offensively. Texas A&M still not lighting the world on fire. Still doesn't look like a really good offensive football team. The quarterback position is still very meh, in my opinion. So, you know, we had an update about Malachi Nelson and his interest in Texas A&M. He takes that unofficial visit there. We said this the weekend he was visiting Texas A&M. That's never been talked about as a school that he was, like, seriously considering. Um, You know, certainly you take a visit there. Uh, you have some interest, but it was always other schools that were mentioned. And you know, it's still some schools mentioned with him a little off the record that he could take some visits to. So we'll see how that happens. But, yeah, in terms of this past weekend, Miami going down to MTSU was interesting. You know, obviously we didn't talk much about Arizona firing Herm Edwards when it happened. But that was always coming. That was always coming. I think it's just more interesting to see, you know, what direction Arizona State goes in. Um 
you know, they've, they've got the sanctions looming over their heads and you have the PAC 10, which is, uh, or the PAC 12, which is going to turn into the PAC 10, which may turn into, you know, even less schools than that. It's, it's, a, it's a, a real awkward time you know, for them to be trying to search for a, a top head coach. You know, it's they, they, some of this is you're recruiting uh, some of these names. It's not just about a paycheck. It's also about the situation you're in. You know, Georgia Tech fired their coaching staff as well. And a lot of people are saying, well, you know, who does Georgia Tech go after? Do they go after Deion Sanders? That's, a, that's an interesting fit for Deion Sanders. But is that a fit that Deion Sanders sees as interesting? Yeah, it's interesting from the standpoint of Georgia Tech would love to have him. It would help their recruiting. Um, he's been uh, pretty good uh, as a as a, of a, a subdivision coach. Um, could he do it on the next level? You know, that remains to be seen, obviously. But certainly it would be an attention-grabbing hire. And I think a lot of people associated with Georgia Tech would say that would be a very good hire for them. But like I said, you know, flipping the coin over from Deion Sanders' perspective, does he want to go to Georgia Tech when – their commitment to football remains a question. You know, you're in the ACC, you're competing with Clemson, you're competing with Miami, you're competing with Florida State, let alone the schools in the SEC, which are just, you know, right next door in Alabama and Auburn, Georgia, so on and so forth. So, you know, does he want to get into that situation where he's still trying to recruit above his head, still trying to coach above his head at a program that's just not going to invest the resources to be competitive at the highest levels? A lot of people see him kind of waiting around for that Florida State job. Obviously, Mike Norvell is doing a pretty good job right now at Florida State trying to rebuild that program to where it doesn't look like he's going anywhere soon. So we'll see how that all plays out. But that brings us to Arizona State. And, you know, who can they attract under the current circumstances? Um, There's a lot of people I saw actually some really bad (laughs) takes on SEC Network, imagine that, about – the move of USC and UCLA going to the Big Ten and how that's going to help Arizona State and schools like Arizona State are going to be able to dominate uh, or should be able to dominate the Pac-12 slash Pac-10 because, you know, you don't have USC and UCLA to recruit against anymore because they're not in your conference. It was just really bad. It was ESP-CNN, basically. I mean, it was like CNN reporting on a a former president. Uh, It was just not... It was just not good. It was like, dude, you're you, why you're spinning this too bad at this point. And it, yeah, I don't think that's a good thing for Arizona State that uh, USC and UCLA are going to be going to another conference. Which clearly now you see the conferences sort of separating themselves. What will become of the Pac-12? You know, we don't know. And um, I think that's that's really something that's going to be a negative. Looking at it from the perspective of a coach that's a hot up and coming coach that a lot of people are looking at and it's like, Hey, you could go to Nebraska. You could go to this school, that school. What about Arizona state? Yeah. We don't know the future other conference. And by the way, you know, they might get sanctioned. So yeah, that that's a tough one. I think for Arizona state, Washington still looking really good. I mean, honestly, if, if you put a gun to my head and said, Hey, go ahead and rank the PAC 12 schools, I'd probably put Washington on top. I mean, I okay. think, okay. I think they have the more quality wins at this point. Um, I think USC is right there. But uh, Washington's playing really sound football on both sides of the ball. And, and uh, we're going to see them play against uh, UCLA here. And people are thinking, hey, they're going to blow UCLA out. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. A lot of people, you know, they, they, they kind of have a, a, this opinion of UCLA being really bad because they played really bad competition. And certainly they didn't do themselves any, any favors playing against, what was it, South Alabama that they barely beat? 
Yeah. University of Alabama Village South Tech. Um, but, you know, Chip Kelly's a wily son of a gun, man. He's a wily son of a gun. And uh, I, I don't think he's put a whole lot out there in the beginning of the season for them. And uh, you could see some wrinkles and some things that can maybe make it a little more difficult for Washington uh, than people expect. So, yeah, uh, Washington, though, playing very well. Uh, Wazoo, yeah, they cooped it. They crapped down the side of their legs. It was a really bad ending <laughs> to that game. I mean, it was bad. They were, they, you know, I mean, truthfully, they're a scrappy team. Um, they got a quarterback that can make a lot of plays. But I see with them, similar to what I saw in Arizona, is that it's a quarterback running for his life. And if he's able to make those plays, it's like, wow, great. You know, they're able to, to score. But if he's not making those plays, and, and, and I look at this through the, the prism of USC's defense in that matchup being, quote, unquote, opportunistic, USC plays really well in the limbo sort of nether regions of a play. When a play kind of sort of breaks down a little bit, quarterback kind of has to move outside the pocket or, or do something, and people are moving and the pieces are moving, you got that angry draft out there, you know, that's just, just floating around. You've got, like, length in the defensive backfield. you got a lot of guys that seem to play really well in space, and that's where USC seems to be making a lot of these plays, a lot of these turnovers have been forced on those types of plays. And so when you got a running quarterback, you know what? He's going to get those gashing yards here and there. But when you put him in that situation where he's not sure if he's going to run or pass, and he throws that ball out there a little hesitantly, tries to make a big play and forces it too much, I think against those type of teams, you're going to have issues. And it caught up with him playing against Oregon. You know, Oregon finally kind of figured it out offensively. Oregon, uh, Washington State's defense had absolutely no answer. I don't know what happened. I didn't see the very first quarter. But, man, it was like they went from, you know, playing really fast and, and seeming to be kind of ahead of what everything that Oregon wanted to do. Uh, they kind of had a step on it to just play on really their heels. Yeah, they were flat-footed playing on their heels. And it, it was just they look horrible. They look really bad. So, I don't know. It's, it's hard to know what Washington State team is going to show up in the Coliseum. But um, I think USC, again, defensively, I think it's a team that they could play really well against. Um, if they just, you know, you know, it's going to be one of those sort of things where they may get some big plays, but when the field gets smaller and the, and the quarterback's got to make quick decisions, I think that defense is going to be there. And if that's oh. all you got. For no, this, you know uh, what? And I'm glad you threw an and in there because there, <laughs> there is one more thing. Uh, as I look at the clock, we're getting closer to three hours. Um, no. One more thing that I, I did want to add. It was an interesting discussion about Jade Knott. So, you know, people have talked to, and we mentioned Jade not, I think last weekend on mm -hmm. the podcast talking about him and, you know, USC did offer him uh, with the interim staff and he was very interested in USC. The current staff pretty much balked on him. You know, it didn't seem like they really had a whole lot of interest. Obviously they had Wally Brown there. So, you know, that's pretty good. And they had their eyes kind of set, I think, towards the portal. And you have to look at the context of this. USC needed some immediate help at running back, right? So in that context, the portal is going to help you more. If you feel like you've got a shot at a couple guys and you've got Travis Dye and you potentially have you know, Austin Jones and, you know, who knows what USC knew and sort of the talk, you know, behind the scenes. Um, those guys jumping in the porthole, you have to go towards that and try to get a couple of guys that are immediate impact players rather than go and get a high school kid and hope 
maybe he can make that transition quickly. You know, obviously, Jay Knott has made that transition, and he's playing really well, and he's a good-looking player, for sure. We saw him in high school. I went and filmed a couple of his games, and he had big games. But I think at face value, it's very understandable. And in that situation, I think most coaches would make the same move. You know, you've got to go after the guys that are the established guys, the veteran guys, and then you're getting the high school player, Raleigh Brown, who's electrifying. You're, you're set. You know, you're looking at other positions. You're thinking about David Bailey. You're thinking about some of these other guys that you're trying to get. Can we get, you know, any last-minute official visits? What's Josh Connolly doing? Oh, he's going to wait until, you know, March. Cool. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to moon over as much as you can, getting in there basically, you know, Thanksgiving weekend. I mean, it was just that quick of a turnaround. So I think people are critical, like, oh, you know, this, this staff missed, quote-unquote, on Jade Knott. I really wouldn't categorize it as a, as a miss. I, I think certainly, you know, moving forward, made this comment, you know, you look at uh, Travis Dye there and you look at Austin Jones and the type of players they were in California, there were guys that were overlooked by the USC coaching staff at that point. And I can see them being looked, you know, maybe overlooked in the future. You have to look at what you have and those guys and how they can potentially progress and develop in your system and not get just enamored with, you know, the grass is greener on the other side. There's some kid in Florida. There's some kid in Texas. We got to go get those guys because they're men already. In the West Coast, you're going to have to project some players. But if you do and you put the time into coaching and developing those players, you get guys like Travis Dye. You can get guys like Austin Jones. You can get guys that are very good football players for you. And I think, you know, a Jade Knott, he's one of those guys. And under different circumstances, if you had a class and you needed, you had a position open, you wanted two running backs, and you only had Raleigh Brown, you know, in a normal year, yeah. You go after Jade Knott, and I think that's a guy that you could overlook very easily, but is a good football player, and is a guy that can win you games. So, you know, Cal was able to, to capitalize, I think, on the transition period for USC, and, and they got themselves a good football player. Got themselves a baller and a guy who's going to be a fixture in the Pac-12 for years to come. Uh, if you're done with that, I think it's time we move into a little high school football schedule, Gerard. Can you just quickly run down where we might be this weekend or this week? Well, some of the more interesting games, um, you know, you're going to have Servite playing St. John Bosco. Not a very interesting game, probably, in terms of the results. Servite has uh, been pretty bad this year. Uh, they've struggled a lot. Um, coming away from, uh, you know, such a good year in that, uh, you know, that uh, T-Mac, uh, Noah uh, F- uh, Fafita era, um, they're uh, not uh, a shell of that team anymore. Um, they're going to play against St. John Bosco at Surreal College. That's going to be a tough one. I would say St. John Bosco is probably going to have that wrapped up by halftime. Uh, Modern Day playing at J. Sarah. So we're going to see Modern Day getting into the teeth of their Trinity League schedule. Modern Day stacked, looking pretty good. Should be a win for them, but uh, going to play against a tougher opponent in Jason. Um, Bishop Vermont playing pretty well right now. You know, your guy, Matt V out there at Bishop Vermont, um, they got some players. I know uh, being at uh, Drupal Hills uh, last week, some of the coaches asked me about Stacy Bay, who transferred over to Bishop Vermont. He's a good-looking player to look out for 2024. I'm not sure statistically what he's done uh, this season yet for Bishop Vermont, but he's a dude. So Bishop Vermont playing a little better. They're going to be at Sierra Canyon. So that's going to be a good matchup for them. Sierra Canyon uh, has a bunch of good players. Uh, Glendale playing at Rio Hondo Prep, so we're going to uh, see our boy, um, you know, Mr. Ryan McCullough, maybe uh, the, you know, sort of off the radar, low-key potential fullback, linebacker recruit, uh, 6'2", 235, uh, guy that's obviously playing against a lot of competition that is not uh, to his physical prowess, but Glendale is a little higher up the rung, um, that uh, is a little better team that they'll play against. 
Uh, so we'll see how that goes for them. Uh, Pauly's going to be playing Milliken. You know, Milliken uh, has uh, some some good athletes there. Jordan Anderson, who's been uh, to a couple of USC games, the 2024 six foot, 175 pound wide receiver uh, recruit that uh, got an off scholarship offer from USC uh, over the summer at one of the camps. They're going to be playing against Pauly. Uh, your boys, we talked a little bit about Dalen Austin. USC's got a couple commits already there. And Dylan Williams, the linebacker, who I think is uh, one of the better linebackers on the West Coast, regardless of class. And Jason Robinson, who's been committed to USC for quite a while, uh, playing uh, in the slot. So uh, see how they play against Milliken. Uh, a lot of talent on the field. That's really the only team, I think, in that Moore League that can give Polly a look. Uh, Los is going to be at uh, Newport Harbor. And then uh, Pinnacle's going to be playing Horizon. So uh, we're going to send somebody out there to that Pinnacle game. Get some updates. Get some actual updates on Deuce Robinson. Yes, we're being reactive. Yes, yes. Just talked about how we don't talk. We don't just go interview. You're a liar, Gerard. You're a liar. Some other schools. Well, hey, we're going out there because Elijah Page is going to be officially Uh visiting USC most likely this weekend. And um, it's a little bit of a 2-4. So we'll get out there and hopefully get an update on those boys and uh, kind of see what's happening here uh, in the near future for uh, both Eliza Page and Deuce Robinson. So it's a, a full schedule for the most part and a little more interesting games uh, this weekend than last weekend. Absolutely. And if we're talking about the high school football schedule, that usually means that's our last topic of discussion for the main part of the show. And that's when we dive into listener questions. Again, if you want to send us a question, have it answered here on our podcast you can uh, email us at podcast at uscfootball.com. That is podcast at uscfootball.com. Just make sure you put the composite, two-star, cilantro boys, uh, hurricane, Chris, 10K, whatever. Just put it in the header, and it'll get to us. And we'll put it here on our docket, and we can answer that question. Or you can DM me. A lot of people have been DMing me questions. I feel like 50% of the questions get DM. Sometimes I apologize. I just want to say sometimes it's been a busy week, and I forget that someone DM'd me. So if you DM me like on a Saturday or a Sunday, just re redo it. Just go back and say, Hey, just remember I asked this question just, just to, just to refresh my memory. Cause a lot of things go on uh, before another week rolls by till we get to our show. So Gerard with that, are you ready to answer some questions? We got a, we got a good amount uh, here today. Yes. Hopefully heat exhaustion is closing in, but yes. All right, well, then let's uh, let's let's knock these out. Let's knock these out, uh, Gerard. I got an easy one for you. SC Dad says, are there any Eric Gentry clones in high school? I'm going to be honest yeah. with you, Gerard. I feel like Gentry is like a unicorn. You know, that's <laughs> just, you just don't see that. You know, I've never seen a six foot six middle linebacker. Everyone I've talked to from coaching staffs to players have all said we have never seen a six foot six middle linebacker. So I'm going to say no. He is a bona fide unicorn at the position. I mean, you know, you had Brian Erlacher, who was a good 6'5", who played safety at New Mexico, who was, you know, an outlier like that. But he was a little more filled out. You know, he was a guy that was playing at, you know, like 240. So he was tall and he was really big. But the thing about Gentry, he's so skinny. Everybody thinks that he doesn't have any physicality. And I um, did a little self-promotion for ourselves. And um, just with that game. I tweeted out the uh, future impact piece that we did of Eric Gentry when he transferred to USC. And I had some great quotes from uh, some, uh, some, uh, how should I put this? I mean, I guess I could say former coaches of his um, Chris Cartman, who, who gave us some excellent evaluation quotes. 
it was full of stuff that was so pre-shadowing, you know, how he plays and, and, and sort of the misnomers of like, yeah, you know, you look at him and he looks like he's just a skinny edge rusher. You know, that's, that's what he looks like profile wise, but he's so physical, he's so smart and his length in the passing game is it's, it's really a factor and you just don't think about it like that, but, and it's, and we've seen it, we've seen it this season where he's just long arms and it's not just rushing the passer. It's like, okay, yeah, you get him on a blitz and he's rushing the passer and he's able to get those arms up. Okay. I understand how that would be effective in the passing game, but it's literally, he's, you know, 20 yards, 30 yards downfield and he's affecting the passing game. So, you know, the red zone against tight ends, it's uh it's pretty spectacular. Uh, the, the, the uniqueness of his game. And um, there was actually a couple posts where you know, some people on the peristyle were looking for, guys in the database just randomly looking for guys that were that height and that length uh that were out there and there was actually a kid and i can't remember his name that's committed to Rutgers right now uh i think he's an athlete recruit that's sort of similar in terms of profile to eric gentry but i haven't looked at his film yet to be able to 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 see if uh you know he, he plays like that at all that's in 2023 yeah i think he was 23 uh, recruit, but you know Gentry, even on film, you know he was a three star. I think a lot of people didn't realize, you know how a how aware and agile he was in space. That that's a very unique thing at that height, and and the physicality, you know, because I I've even seen on other message boards where other Pac-12 fans, <clears throat> uh, have been talking about Eric Gentry and talking about you just run right at him, and and, and you know he's he's too skinny and blah blah blah. And it's like. You know, the thing that makes him really unique is the fact that he, he seems to get off of blocks and he still makes plays and he's a good tackler. He's not just this, you know, finesse type basketball player out there on the football field. Absolutely. And a great breakdown of that, Gerard. Uh, I have a question from Chris. Uh, what? Why not Julian Sand? Referring to five-star quarterback Julian Sand. Local kid doesn't fit their style. Not good enough. Confused. What's the story? Look. I'm Gerard, you'll you'll back me up on this, but I've been a huge Julian Sane guy, right? Before or after the haircut? Uh before. I was definitely on the train early. I was definitely on the train early. I saw him at a workout out in uh San Diego. I was actually going to see Jake Garcia and Malachi Nelson. Uh Malachi Nelson absolutely ripping it that day. And you know, the QB coach, uh shout out to Danny Hernandez, told me like, hey, this Julian Sane kid, great name, needs a profile, made him a profile. He's like, he's the next one. And he was very impressive as a young, I believe he was just going to a sophomore year or something like that, but just super impressive. And I was I was a Julian Sane fan from the get-go. Graham Harrell and USC were, were kind of circling him a little bit. They were definitely interested. Uh, but I don't really have an answer for why Lincoln Riley – the staff doesn't doesn't uh, look harder at Julian Sane. Maybe down the line, I don't know. But right now, it doesn't seem like he's on their radar. I would say he doesn't fit the system. But, you know, Elijah Brown is probably closer to Julian Sane stylistically than maybe Caleb Williams. So, you know, they have offered some pocket quarterbacks. And we talked about that last week in terms of, you know, maybe Lincoln Riley just wants to show that he can do it with both types of quarterbacks, you know, maybe you recruit various different types of quarterbacks just so you have that on the roster and the depth chart, because it is good if you're able to practice against that, you know, having Miller Moss 
on the team is, is very good because if you go against a pocket quarterback who's very smart, very accurate, and is going to be more of a game manager, is going to get the ball out of his hands quickly. Well, you know, if that's not what you have as a starting quarterback, well, you know, your first team defense is not going to be able to see a whole lot of that during the year. And you're practicing a lot more than you are just playing games. So it's a matter of, you know, going into that preparation. It's good to have a variety of different players on your roster just so, you know, from a scout team standpoint, you get a look. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. They, they definitely, you know, when they were all in on Dylan Riola, I know that uh, Julian Sayon evidently was talking about taking an unofficial visit to USC, wanted to meet up with Lincoln Riley. And from my source is Lincoln Riley didn't want to do that. Lincoln Riley was like, hey, hey, we're going after Dylan Riola. He's our guy. And then he, you know, obviously committed to Ohio State. So they shifted. They, you know, went after DJ Lagway. I don't know if that's still like the policy low key to not meet with other kids. And, you know, Lagway's the only guy is obviously that's not happening anymore either because, you know, now you've got Elijah Crown who's being recruited. So I don't know necessarily where they actually stand with Julian Sand, but certainly wasn't a guy out of the gates that USC recruited real hard. I can't remember if he had an offer from Oklahoma before Lincoln Riley came over. But, I mean, for my uh, perspective, I would absolutely keep on recruiting dual-threat quarterbacks. If a guy cannot move, not just outside the pocket, because Dylan Riola is athletic enough where he could move outside the pocket. I want a guy that can run the football. I want a guy on a mesh read can get, you know, 10, 15 yards at the very least on a run. And we've seen it come in time and time again here already early this season against some pretty mediocre defenses, by the way, where there's been a play or two where Caleb Williams has to get away from a sack. He's got to get away from a negative play. And those negative plays we said before can derail drives really quickly. So, you know, you're talking about, Caleb Williams struggling in that Oregon State game. Yeah, he struggled, but you know what? He also got away from some plays that could have been game-changing plays. Yeah, there was at that, least three sacks where he just spun out effortlessly and extended the play. Absolutely. And to me, that was the most important facet of Sam Darnold's game. It wasn't, you know, the the 30-yard run that he made here or the or the 15-yard run he made there. It was his ability to get away from negative plays and maybe make it a negative yard play by one yard instead of seven yards or maybe get two or three yards. And people go, well, it's two or three yards. It's not a big deal. But it's like it is a big deal because it could have been a play that completely killed the drive, could have flipped the field and ended up being a score for the other team. So that's that's huge, in my opinion. And there has to be a certain level of athleticism just seeing what Lincoln Riley has done with guys like Jalen Hurts and Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield. I just, if it's not broke, don't, fi- don't fix it. You know I mean? It's, it's, don't go away from your wheelhouse, which worked so well for that offense. And I just think in general for college football, mobile quarterbacks, you know, they're not the future anymore. They're the present. I have a question from Jackson SF. Hi, Chris and Hurricane. In the war room, Her- Hurricane stated, do you actually want me to read this little segment here? Because it is a war room. Oh, um, e- uh, maybe paraphrase? Uh, yeah. Okay. We don't, well, we don't he's, he's basically asking the about uh, the offensive line, and you reference uh, the lack of class limits. Uh, and he wants a the question is about the class limits. Can you please clarify your statement about the lack of class limits? Are the twenty five man annual class limits, m- limits a thing of the past? Is the only limit the overall eighty five man limit? And you touched on this earlier, but yes. Yes, correct. Yes. They have done away 
with the 25 man limit. And it's mainly because of the transfers. They at first gave you this seven uh, more number. They, they, they added, it could be 20. They could, well, they added that you could have seven more players sign in the class. If you had seven uh, or more players, I think transfer out. And so they try to give you a little headroom. And I think they just realized, you know what, <laughs> transfers are, are all over the place at this point, And it, we got to just kind of take the, the the ceiling off of each class. So, yeah, all the all the sort of okie dokes and, and blue shirts and gray shirts and all that kind of stuff to try to sign more. Each class is gone. So each cycle, you know, we could still reference a full class is 25 because it's a sort of a, a round number, if you will, just, you know, to sort of cite. But technically, there's no such thing as a full class anymore. Full class is whatever you sign. So, yeah, from year to year, it's really about that 85 number. Uh, being most important and not 25. Uh, LA Transplant, TA, Hurricane, Gmart, please elaborate what, quote, your little eye, end quote, saw in Earl Barquette during his snaps. That's from LA Transplant. Yeah, so I tweeted uh, my eye, I spy with my little eye, Earl Barquette, who got uh, a, a few reps in that game and yes. it looked good. And it seems like he, and it seems like, just want to say, like from practice observations today, seems like he's going to be earning more uh, opportunity with the first team based on what I saw in practice. So definitely looks like Earl Barquette stock is going up. We saw him on his film leaving TCU, and I thought this guy's the prototypical Alex Grinch defensive lineman because he's incredibly quick, very active, and he's got a little more athleticism and a little more length than maybe Stanley Tafu or some of the other players they have. I just, I saw some quickness. I saw some penetration. I saw him sort of disrupting the play a little bit. And um, yeah, I, I kind of like that. And, and it's just one of those things that, you know, like I said, saw that little bit of TCU. He's about 280, 285, 6'3". Um, so he's a little more prototypical in terms of what you would see, you know, with the big boys, you know, the Clemsons and what have you. Um, and, you know, we always go back to that, you know, as, as Alex Grinch, is he going to be able to, to go away from that and do something different and, and not have those big uglies uh, have, you know, 260 pound guys, 270 pound guys on the interior. Um, you know, we've seen Dijon Benton play pretty well as well though, you know, and he's got that club. So obviously he's a little more limited in terms of maybe tackles. He might miss a tackle here or there because he's not able to grab as much. That's certainly it's, 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 it's something that hampers you as a defensive lineman being able to grab because, you know, you have a lot of uh, push-pull techniques and things that you can do on the offensive line. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I thought Elk Burkett looked pretty good in those limited reps and uh, wouldn't mind seeing a little more of him. Uh, this is from Eric in Duck Country. Chris and Hurricane, what's your recruiting pitch to Mateo? You could be the next Thule or we need you at the rush end spot. Also, getting the tight end out of Los Lake, excuse me, getting the tight end out of Lake Oswego, it's pronounced Oswego, uh, is huge. That's where I live, and the entire city is University of Oregon Lums. Thanks. Thank you for the question, Eric. And, yeah, I think Mateo could definitely look at Thule, or the coaching staff could definitely point to Thule, like, look, we can move you all around interior. Mateo's definitely big enough where he can put on weight and play an interior guy, or, you know, still put on some weight and still be effective as an edge rusher on the outside. He's that athletic and he has an amazing frame. I believe he's like about, I would say he's bigger than Thule by about two inches. Uh, 
So, yeah, definitely you could look at Thule as kind of that blueprint for him. And also my recruiting pitch just in general is we have the Dr. Dre school. Just come make music here while you're uh, you're not playing football. It's I, it's just a perfect blend. But, Dre, we get in trouble for uh, looking at things logically with with prospects. Yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, you give them the young concrete pitch because you know yeah. more about the modern-day rap scene and maybe some of the mixtapes that my guy Mateo – has underground right now but for me on the football side of it absolutely Tuli Tuli Akulutu is the guy that I am going to say here's the blueprint my friend because Tuli plays both defensive tackle and outside he's doing both he stands up sometimes and I've said in the past I kind of want to see him just be a three technique because I I kind of feel that's where his, his ceiling is the highest probably in his fell but as we talked about a little earlier in the podcast, that lineup of Thule being strong side at the end, Solomon Bird being on the other side, and then having Benton and having Peely inside, that was pretty good for them against Oregon State, right? Maybe against a team that wants to spread it a little more, and you're going to have to play against those tunnel screens and the bubble screens and stuff, maybe you know, like a Washington State or, or some of these other schools that want to pass the ball a little more. You have to change that up. but you know, I'm also of the opinion, too, that sometimes coordinators adjust personnel a little bit too much to the offense and sometimes don't force the offense to adjust to the defense. I mean, you're seeing a lot of teams right now um, adjust to USC defensively, but they're going out with that eight-man sort of secondary. And that, and that goes back to even what teams have done against the Graham Herald. Air raid, you know, where, where BYU sort of drew up the blueprint and just sit back and ain't. They're going to keep passing the ball. <laughs> it's going to happen. They're not going to run the ball two times in a row. They can't run the ball two times in a row under Graham Harrell. So they're going to keep passing the ball. Just sit back and they'll eventually pass it right to you and they're going to end up being three and out. And that's kind of what we've seen a little bit with Stanford and then Fresno State did a little bit more of it. And Fresno State usually did not blitz as much as Oregon State. Oregon State, I don't think it blitzed as much against USC as I saw them blitz against Fresno State. So, again, they were sitting back a little bit on USC saying, we know you want to win passing the ball. So USC has to offensively do some type of adjustment where it's like, listen, you're going to be back there in eight, and you're going to put five guys at the line of scrimmage at the 10-yard line? Are you freaking kidding me? We're going to run the ball. 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 We're going to run the ball seven times in a row just to make a point that we will gash you. Now, the thing is, USC has to be somewhat successful and continue to move the chains. I mean, there was a, a there was a couple instances there where they ran the ball with Travis Dye, and there was a five-man front, and they did they got a yard. And it's like, dumb. Eh, that's not – that can't do that. That's that's going back. That's flashbacks of Graham Harrell and that Helton offense. So you got to be able to run the ball. But um, they've had enough success where I think that, you know, if they really sort of committed to it and said, listen – we're going to, at some point, if we start seeing a bunch of eight-man secondary zone-type defenses, we're going to go full-on here. And we've got it sort of in our game plan, almost scripted, the runs we want to do five in a row, just just to do it, just to show everybody else you can't run this sort of prevent defense uh, on our passing game. But, um, yeah, so that's that's all I have to say about that. This one comes from Johnny G. Question for two-star recruits. Is USC recruiting Vaca Henson? And could you provide a list of the recruits who made it to the Fresno State game? 
Well, Johnny, I just want to let you know that we had the full list in last week's episode. We ran down that list. I don't have it off the top of my head, but, you know, Malachi Nelson was there, Makai Lemon, Zachariah Branch, uh, Quentin Joyner, the, the USC, all those guys committed. Uh, there was a couple other guys, but you can go and listen to that other episode. Uh, and it's timestamped, so you can just go in, pop in, and listen to us talk about all those unofficial visitors. And as far as Vaca Henson, that is the... Uh, six foot one, three hundred five pound uh, defensive lineman out of St. John Bosco, a three star prospect in the twenty four seven sports. I do not believe he is on USC's radar at this point. Maybe down the line, but at this point, I do not believe they were recruiting him. Next question comes from. Let me see. Got to pick one. Got to pick one. Uh, this one comes from Austin. When Hurricane goes on his rants about SC getting lower. Local lower star recruits, I think it's being lost to the people that we still need four and five stars. You can't build a championship team with low star players that you that you would have to play right away. That being said, with these three star defensive line players committing. So. Hold on, I got to analyze this. So that being said, with these three star player defensive line playing. Do you I believe he's saying, do you see higher ranked players coming in at the position or is it all transfer portal for the next year well we kind of did hit on this last week about yes it's important to get some of those local guys finding those bodies those local bodies on the west coast obviously sam green is not a local guy but that's another three-star guy in this class Elijah Hughes is a three-star guy they are obviously still recruiting uh four and five-star guys they're not going to stop doing that but they are starting to build the foundation of the class and the defensive line needs bodies they need guys so they they have the spots and they're going to need to fill those spots so they're taking guys that they like on film and guys they feel like they can develop but you're you're right you they do need uh four and five star guys and i believe we even you know said that uh when we were talking about uh dejan lafitte's commitment that these are three-star guys but you still need those big time playmakers the ta cunningham's the mateos you need those guys in the trenches to be the difference maker for your for your defensive line so they are still recruiting i think they are still gonna have to hit the portal at some point but like i said defensive line guys in the portal they go quick gotta jump on them quickly but we know usc is very prolific in the transfer portal so they're definitely gonna that's always going to be an option for them but i would say that they are definitely still in the hunt for some bigger name defensive linemen but you know we're only a third of the way through the season Gonna have to wait. They keep winning. The don't don't worry about it. The, the 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 players will start calling USC to get on, especially with the way this defense is playing, Gerard. You'd love to get just four star and five star guys across the board on your defensive and offensive lines, but you're on the West Coast. So you're really gonna have to do both. And I've said this time and time again. You're gonna have to have coaches, particularly on the defensive line, that are gonna be able to develop some guys. Right? Find some guys that are 240 and develop them into 285-pound defensive tackles. Uh, same thing on the offensive side of the ball. To, to, to a large extent, you're going to have to find the offensive tackles that are the Chad Wheeler types that are 250 pounds coming out of high school, um, Jacob Rogers, maybe even a guy that's a tight end, and put weight on him and develop him into an offensive lineman. The lines, when you are USC and you're in California, you're not going to find a bunch of ready-made 6'5", 315-pound off to tackles or defensive tackles. So they come along now and again, and certainly you could go out of state and recruit those guys. But we know that even at the highest points 
And this is where, you know, having that frame of reference of the Pete Carroll era comes into to play here. Even at the, the, the heights of USC going for a third straight national championship, it was very difficult to go out to the South and get defensive tackles. You get a visit here and there, but linemen in general, it's very difficult to go to the Southeast and grab a bunch of guys. There usually has to be some type of recruiting angle. Maybe they've got family out here. Some reason that you can kind of get traction and develop that relationship, and then you can be able to close the deal. But it's very, very difficult. It's as difficult, if not more difficult, than getting out, getting guys out of the transfer portal. Now, that is a new facet of recruiting that you would, you know, we don't know how that would have turned out in the Pete Carroll era. You know, how would the transfer portal have gone in the Pete Carroll era? I, I think Pete would have probably exploited it to hell to such a point that it probably would have shut it down. Because <laughs> I mean, I don't know that that would have been really, really good for them to be able to plug and play players. And seeing how good of a recruiter he was and the staff was, man, if they could have just gone and cherry picked certain positions and be able to get guys that were ready made, ah, that would have been that would have been something. So if USC is able to get back to that point where they are consistent national championship contenders year in and year out, perennial, you may have a little better shot going after, you know, some key defensive linemen and they're plug-and-play players. I think it's still going to be tougher, but you've got older guys that have, been, have actually traveled and been on planes. I mean, you have to understand, some of these kids have never been out of their county before, okay, in the South. You know, you get some players that you're recruiting, and you're thinking, you know, they're not rural, rural South players. Some of these guys live in the outskirts of Atlanta. It doesn't matter. They still have not traveled. They're not worldly. Their family is from one place. That's the big difference between a lot of kids in certain areas of the South and the Midwest where you have generations of people that just really haven't gone anywhere. That's where they're from. That's where they've been. California, you got a bunch of carpetbaggers. A lot of people from California, specifically Southern California, have family from all other places. They've got family from Louisiana. They got family that's from Texas and they moved here. So it's not so hard for them to consider schools from those areas because they usually go there as kids for vacation or their, their families go there for the holidays to go see the family that, you know, originally is from Texas or originally from those areas. So it's a little different. It's a little different when you're on the West Coast and there's a specific position that you're trying to recruit because there's just not a lot of good players at that position in a particular class. And defensive line and offensive line is always going to be more of a struggle year to year. So you have to go and get those guys that are going to be projects. They're going to get overlooked. that are not going to be national recruits. But at the same time, yes, I agree. You have to go after the Mateo Ungulales. And you know what? Some of those guys, maybe they don't turn out to be great players. Maybe they turn out to be plus. So you have to keep that in mind as well. So, yeah, development is very key at both of those positions as much, if not more so, than most of their positions. I think quarterback is obviously a big one. Um, although quarterbacks nowadays, they all have offseason quarterbacks. They're getting a lot of coaching in the offseason from people that are not even on the coaching staff. Uh, that private tutoring for uh, quarterbacks has been around for, you know, really the past 20 years almost, and it's just picked up. So, you know, I think that's actually probably a little overrated, but you don't have that for linemen. You don't have that for defensive linemen. You don't have that for linebackers, a lot of other positions. So I think player development is absolutely key along the lines. You've got to grab those those three-star guys. And, and also it goes back to the brick-and-mortar philosophy that I sort of have, and, and that's a position where you want to get some guys 
that are some of those mortar guys, some of those rebarb guys that are glue guys that bring together the team that are there, that can be scout team, that are not going to be five-star guys you bring in and then they don't play enough, you know, the first five games of the season and all of a sudden they're on Twitter talking about how, you know, they wish that they, uh, you know, went somewhere else or they're waiting patiently, quote unquote, and they all of a sudden, you know, rile up the fan base because everybody thinks they're going to transfer. Luther Burden reference. <laughs> Star, we have five questions left. Let's let's hit these. Uh, this one comes from Terrence House the Bouse, as I like to call him. For Hurricane and DMV Chris Pod, how many currently committed how many currently committed kids elsewhere are now legitimate options for SC? Not asking for names. We know you won't divulge. So just a number, maybe positions, referring to realistic options, not just kids that are traction type guys. I counted and had a conversation where there was there was six names that came up, and that was counting Elijah Page. So there's a handful of guys oh. that we know of that are guys that are still in contact with USC. Obviously, Dalen Austin, we talked about that. He's gone on record and saying that yeah. and, and saying, you know, I'm still talking to Dante Williams. Some of these other guys, you know, they, they're not going to go on record and talk about that, and they want to be solid with their commitments, so on and so forth, at face value, so they don't create a lot of drama. But it wouldn't be a shock if they popped up at USC on a visit, unofficially or officially. I mean, shoot, now we're talking <laughs> now we're talking about Sperling. I mean, you know, that was a guy that, you know, I that's not a name that ever came up, um, you know, until, uh, you know, Chris saw him at practice uh, today. Uh, we're, we're pretty sure. So, yeah, um, you know, that's just one of those things that uh, that's going to make, you know, signing day a little more interesting. And, and you know, will there be more surprises? Um, you know, practices are closed. And so there's a lot of stuff that USC is doing that, you know, even in, in years where there was more transparency with the program, there was stuff that still happened that was sort of done under the radar as much as possible. Um, eventually, all this stuff comes to light. And that's why, you know, when people get all caught up with the, the emojis and trying to guess with all this stuff, it's like, listen, man, it's it'll come out when it comes out. It's, it's knowing today as opposed to you know, knowing three days or four days from now or a week from now, it's really not that big of a difference. It's going to be a commitment. It's really at the end of the day, you know, because we know how this works, who signs where. And that's, um, you know, the most important thing. And as we get closer to signing day, that's when we really have to start to focus in on, um, you know, projecting the class. This comes from Vagabond Trojan. In talking with recruits about their visits, have any shared stories that improve? Have any shared stories that impress you with how unique or interesting a school pitches their product? The Luau seemed like a great event, but wondering if there are unique one-on-one -on -one experiences USC or other schools love to use. Uh, again, that's Vagabond Trojan. And shout-out to Vagabond Trojan, who's made some cool like uh, audio-visual edits for this podcast that I'm trying to implement in the future. So shout-out to him. But unique or interesting school pitches, Gerard. You've obviously been covering more than me, but USC has started utilizing some stuff like uh, SoFi Stadium. They hosted some recruits there. They did the breakfast at uh, Staples Center or Crypto Arena, whatever, Staples Center. Those are some kind of you know group uh, unique things that USC can do. Uh, I don't know about unique kind of one-on-one -on -one things. I think a cool one is that I was talking to a 2024 prospect who talked about how he wants to be in film and Lincoln Riley promised that he will take him personally on a one-on-one -on -one tour of the cinematography school. So you don't have a lot of kids talking about the cinematography, even though USC is a world-renowned cinematography school. But I think that that's a cool kind of unique thing I've heard, just like, you know, Lincoln personally taking someone through the cinematography school for a, uh, for a recruiting 
I guess, pitch, if you will, or just to show the school off? Yeah, I mean, you know, unfortunately, I can't really get around the Spencer Fano play. I think <laughs> naming go. plays after recruits is kind of interesting. That's um, the pillar, right? You can't you can't get higher than that. Yeah, um, the cheesiest thing. You know, we've heard about um, – I remember Mario Cristobal went and visited uh, uh, Penny Sewell's dad in the hospital, I believe. And he was, uh, you know, sick and, and, and had some issues with his health, ended up in the hospital. And that was right around the time where you could make in-home visits. And Mario Cristobal went to the hospital and visited with the dad, and that was a, a, an interesting thing that I think made – a good impact on Penny Sewell, who really, I mean, people don't know how close he ended up to committing to USC, despite USC at some point completely not recruiting him during the season. Um, I remember back in the day, Frank Beamer, oh, what was the kid's name? It was Victor. um, Michael Vick. No, it was not Michael Vick. It was a cornerback, five-star cornerback. He ended up going to Virginia Tech, but he had it in he had an in-home visit it was it was macho it was um uh oh man why am i blinking on his name he was a really good player he actually didn't really do a whole lot in college um dude, his name uh, was macho is that what you're chris, saying chris right now google uh virginia tech macho and the, and he okay. and cornerback and it'll, it'll come up uh so it was during in-home visits, right? In-home visits are always where you get weird stuff that happens. I already mentioned the whole Ellis McCartney thing and uh, the two different families and the reveal. <laughs> it was like a freaking Jerry Springer episode, uh, Maury Povich. Um, so Frank Beamer went, and he was he's going to go for the in-home visit. And this kid had a freaking grease fire in his house, like as, as Frank oh. Beamer is arriving God. and almost burned down the damn uh apartment so he had to go to the hospital and everything and frank beamer was like there and i i want to say frank beamer i think the story is actually drove him to the hospital not 100 percent sure but he, he burned his hand and then and it was it was a whole thing it was he and his little brother were there and they were waiting for his mom to come home and he was cooking and they had a grease fire and it was you know and, and this was not a and i and this is not really answering a question because he's he's asking for like you know sort of like scripted type of things right. or whatever but um, just like, you know, a weird story. And, and again, one of those situations where hospital injuries, you know, a very intimate sort of atmosphere and serious moment. And those coaches are able to sell, hey, you know what? I'm going to be there for your son. I'm going to be that father figure. You know, I, I, and then parents are, are, you know, they're looking for that. They want to feel comfortable with that coaching staff and know that, you know, these are kids. These are kids still. They're, they're really not young men yet coming out of high school, especially when you're talking about a highly touted recruit that more than likely has, you know, been been passed along because of his talents and maybe hasn't seen a whole lot of life's lessons that are that are very important and they're very immature. And so you have to really and I'm not saying that about every recruit. You know, you have your Matt Barkley's of the world and your Chris Galippos, but there are some very immature kids and they need that father figure. And you know, that's that's something that comes into play and, and those types of situations we've seen be very beneficial, you know, because those coaches have been there and, and they've been there at the time of need, so to speak. And I think um, it really speaks to the parents. Um, so, yeah, that that's uh, not really necessarily answering the question. Obviously, um, Chris, uh, I got the name. 
who was his name? Victor Macho Macho? What was it? Macho Harris. Macho Harris. That was what it was. Macho Victor, Harris. Victor Macho Harris. That's what it yeah, was. He had, yeah, Macho was his nickname. And yeah, he was a big time recruit it's for like US Jet White. It's like Jet really White. High. It's like, it's like Jet, Jet White. White oh, well, yeah. Well, the like game, yeah. 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 So yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, Macho was a guy that was a five star recruit from Virginia that, you know, he was, I don't know if he was in that Percy Harvin class. I think he was maybe the following class, but. He was one of those guys. And you know what the interesting thing and just kind of a sidebar, and it's just totally off the subject of the question, but just talking about cornerback recruits, Pete Carroll was a defensive back recruit. They str- that was another position. They really struggled for a while to get out-of-state five-star cornerbacks. They just could not for their lives get guys from out-of-state. Really, T.J. Bryant was the first big-time guy that they ever got. They tried so hard with so many players – and missed out on so many cornerbacks nationally. And T.J. Bryant was was the first big-time guy they got that was a five-star at Lincoln Tallahassee High School. Ended up not being a very good player for USC. He didn't really do much for USC. Um, coincidentally, he was in that class with Patrick Johnson, a.k.a. Patrick Peterson. But, um, yeah, that was a, that was one of the guys, Macho Harris, that was like one of the big uh, cornerback recruits that uh, USC was after. Ended up staying home, Virginia Tech, after uh, – I mean, he committed, I want to say, like, a few weeks after that incident. Any truth to Ed Orgeron trying to get uh, Adrian Peterson's dad transferred to a local prison? I heard about that. I, I don't. I don't know if that came from Adrian Peterson's mouth or not. I. I. I heard a lot of you know, a lot of rumors about Adrian Peterson, what have you. I mean, that's a pretty damn good outside the box thought. I mean, that was a big. Di- that was a big deal in his recruitment. I know that his dad was locked up there. Um, in, in Texas and he was from East Texas and yeah, that was definitely a, a thing that in his recruitment for sure. So, I mean, that's, that's a talk about being a good recruiter and thinking on your toes, man, Ed Ergeron boy. Woo. If that's true. That boy, I, that, that's that. I mean, I've heard of that, but I don't know that that's true or not. Okay. Okay. Uh, we have three more left. This one comes from Austin. Uh, cilantro, exclamation point, exclamation point. Mateo with the USC sleeve last Friday. I emoji, I emoji. Elijah Brown is quickly climbing the rankings chart, surpassing DJ Lagway and currently ranked as the fifth QB in the class of 2024. Is this because of the national exposure of modern day or because he's really a dude? Can you go a little in depth about his skill set outside of the narrative that he's a good game manager and winner? Well, Austin, we did. Talk about Elijah Brown, I believe, heavily last episode, Gerard, because I just come off covering his game against Mililani. So you could also go back to last episode and find our. Break it down again, Chris. Give it to him. I'm just, I'm just saying, if he wants another more in-depth breakdown, uh, there is one there where we talk about him seeing him in person. It wasn't his best game. It definitely felt very game manage, management esque in that regard, but he can make throws. He can make plays always calm knows what's going on. Very, very battle tested having, you know, been a starter since his freshman year. I think it's a little bit of both. I think he is a, a really good quarterback. He is a high end quarterback that can start for national power five programs. But I also think playing at modern day also does help his status because he is playing for a national power at the high school level and in the toughest football league in the country toughest high school football league in the country in the trinity league so when he's playing against multiple division one athletes prospects every week 
that you know you're you're going to take that in and it's all about reps for quarterbacks seeing a bunch of different defenses looks your way and when you're doing that against fellow guys you're going to play in college with power five prospects you know that makes you that much better that's going to make you that much uh smarter and talented and competitive at the next level so getting that exposure is a a a big boost to you know why he's viewed as so talented so i think it's a little bit of both i agree with everything you said there i think people do forget you know it's a twofold thing when you start talking about competition certainly if you're playing against good competition that's great from Mm -hmm. an eval standpoint but if you're playing with great players as well, you have to sort of mitigate that to some extent. You know, Elijah Brown plays with a great offensive line, and he's able to make a lot of throws that other quarterbacks may not be able to make for whatever reason, be it they don't have the protection from a good offensive line, or B, they don't have the receivers that can actually make those catches. I mean, we often talk about Sarah and what they're going through right now offensively because you've got Jason Mitchell as the quarterback and it's like Jason Mitchell would normally be out there at receiver making these big time catches, but he's not there because he's playing quarterback and he's not necessarily a guy that's, you know, chucking the ball downfield far enough and fast enough to get to a guy like Roger Pleasant who, you know, 10, one, can anybody really out throw him at that point? So, you know, it goes both ways. And that's what people have to read. You know, when we see, evaluation film and it's like oh this guy's playing against a bunch of little kids and it's like well yeah because that's 90 percent, 99 percent probably of the defensive linemen or offensive linemen at the high school level they're not seeing a lot of other division one guys but you also have to look at okay who are they playing next to at the same time because if they're not playing next to another division one guy on their own team they're going to get double and triple teamed so it all sort of hashes itself out you have to keep all these things in mind it's all about context but i agree with you and in terms of evaluation i mean i just think game manager is, I mean, maybe it's looked at as a slight by some people, but I mean, if you don't have it and you've got a quarterback that doesn't have a high football IQ and he doesn't have good awareness for the down and distance, it's going to suck. Your offense is not going to be very good. So that shouldn't be looked at as a, as an attribute that is a a benign attribute. It's important. Um, He's just not a, you know, rocket arm, super fast, twitchy type of guy that's really flashy in that way. And from a, I guess, profile standpoint, stylistically, that's what Lincoln Riley has, you know, been successful with. You know, Kyler Murray. Now, Kyler Murray was really small. Kyler Murray is a sort of a Bryce Young type of quarterback in terms of, you know, his, his, his diminutive size, but had a great arm. You know, was a big-time baseball player um, and was inc- incredibly mobile. Uh, you look at uh, Jalen Hurts. A lot of people said Jalen Hurts, when he went to Alabama, he's going to end up being a receiver and end up being a safety. He's not going to play quarterback. So, you know, some of these players, they were athletes um, first and then sort of developed that ability to play quarterback because they had the arm and what have you. And it's sort of the opposite with Elijah Brown. I mean, he's a quarterback first. It's the athleticism. You say, okay, would you want him running the ball a whole lot? Now he has. I mean, I saw, you know, in the, in the Corona Centennial game, they ran Mesh Reed. Uh, read option and he scored a quarter he scored a touchdown so it's not like he can't but it's one of those things where you kind of want to put guys on the clock and say okay is he you know what can he actually do from a number standpoint verifiably because we know that jt daniels 
he got better uh, athletically, you know, over over the, the course of, uh, you know, his, his, his sophomore to his junior year. We were watching him and he reclassified. So that got all shifted. But, you know, he he definitely that last season at modern day, he was running the ball. And I remember Greg Biggins and I talking and going, wow, you know, he's definitely more of an athlete than he ever was. He was pretty much a statue quarterback early years at modern day. And even talked to Malik uh, James, who runs uh, premium sports, who had him on the seven on seven team, said, you know, he, he could play receiver for us and be pretty good. He's a lot more athletic than people realize. Then you saw, you know, he gets to co- college. And, he, and unfortunately, that freshman year, it didn't translate real well. You know, the athleticism. And, and you have to also look at the system that he was in and the fact that Clay Helton, I think, wasn't real big on his quarterbacks throwing the football. You know, he slapped knee braces on those guys and was like, listen. Here's the play. And I've said this before, but I talked to somebody on the staff who told me flat out he did not like mobile quarterbacks because of the sort of variable that they bring to the playbook. They're 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 sort of riffing on the playbook a little bit. And my thought was you need to riff on that playbook. It's not very good. You need somebody who can play outside the box. You need somebody who can play outside the playbook. And that's why Sam Darnold was successful in that playbook. But I digress. So I think, you know, in general, though, in college football. You've got a mobile quarterback. It does mitigate a lot. It mitigates if you don't have a great offensive line. USC's got an offensive line that's getting better and better, but do they have that, you know, that franchise first-round left tackle? Hell no, they don't. Not right now, they don't. I don't think Bobby Haskins, as well as he's playing, is a first-round pick at this point. So, you know, what mitigates that is Caleb Williams being able to make some of those blindside sort of moves where he gets away from the pass rusher. And that's what you need. And so, you know, does Elijah Brown have that? We haven't seen a whole lot of that. That's not his wheelhouse. He's a guy that is more of a pro passer. You're going to put it behind a good offensive line. He's going to make really good decisions. And he's going to be accurate. And he's going to make the good throw. And he's going to see the field very well. See the field well, indeed. Our last questions come from David Law, who has two questions. SC fans seems to be in love with Roderick Robinson. I'm curious whether you think that's justified and SC should be after him. Or you think we have better guys committed and or better guys we could go after? And then the first question or the second question, when Kayvon Thibodeau was a high school prospect, Gerard indicated that SC was steering clear of him for unspecified reasons, perhaps related to his entourage. I could be wrong on that. Has enough time passed that you can give us details? And if you can't, can you at least tell us whether knowing what you knew then, SC was right not to heavily recruit him? Interesting question for you, Gerard. But in terms well, that, of Roderick Robinson, or what do you want to start with? Well, yeah, I was going to start just with Thibodeau. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't <laughs> want to make like accusations or what have you. I mean, there it's it's sort of word of mouth that USC felt like his his recruitment was a bit hot. You know, it was a bit of a jackpot, and um, considering you know USC was was aggressive. Uh, in, in a lot of recruitments, that was just interesting. You know, it was never a, an evaluation, and, and people have brought this up and they've been confused. I never got from anybody from USC, he's not a good football player. You know, they, they didn't like him as a football player. You know, maybe there are some people that felt like he was a little overrated. I, I felt he was a little overrated, to be perfectly honest with you. I didn't think he had the speed of a weak side defensive end to be a five-star guy. And I think he was more of like a high four-star guy maybe not elite elite ends up being a first round pick. We'll see what he does in the NFL. Um, so I'll, I'll say, you know, I, I guess to this point, I, I've been wrong uh, about that in terms of, you know, his ceiling. Um, it's okay. But, you got Drake run London, right? It's fine. <laughs> and Drake Jackson. But um, as a, uh, a recruit, 
you know, yeah, entourage, definitely, definitely. And that was something that was mentioned even from some SEC schools, that there were comments made and things done that was like, whoa, that's pretty brazen. And I was basically told so much from USC. Uh, we, we don't know about trying to get this guy. Like, there was, I think there was a lot of different opinions in the war room at that point with him uh, later in the year. Cause I know, you know, there were some, some people on the staff that, that wanted to keep recruiting him and still, you know, had somewhat of a relationship with him, but clearly, I mean, USC, they, I mean, he even tweeted, I think at some point, like I'm not going to get any love from the hometown sort of thing. So they, they, they made a very conscientious decision. We just, yeah, we just don't want to draw attention, you know, recruiting him. We think that it's going to come with some baggage. And I mean, at the end of the day, as far as we know, nothing happened with Oregon. You know, they didn't get in trouble with anything. So, you know, in hindsight, no. I mean, you got to recruit them. I mean, you know, if if it ain't cheating, if you don't, if you ain't trying, is that the 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 uh, <laughs> the, the old uh, adage? adage. Um, and, and if and if you don't get in trouble for something, you didn't do anything wrong, I guess. And as far as Roderick Robinson, we have talked about him multiple times on the show. I believe we had a. Talk about him in our top performers uh, uh, section last podcast. I keep referencing the last podcast, but there are timestamps now, guys. You can go back, just jump in and listen. But Gerard has talked about how, yes, he has put up some monster stats, but you also got to look at the context of competition that he's faced where sometimes he doesn't have his best games against best competition. Is that, isn't that correct, Gerard? Did I uh, sum that up correctly? Well, against Alemany, he was pretty much locked down, correct? So just, you know, I I think USC is happy with the guys they have now. I'll say that. That's that's what I think. I think they're fine with the guys that they have in Marion Peterson and Quentin Joyner. So I think everyone is fine right, right where they're at. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree with that. And you look on film just from, you know, the early – game highlights that you've seen of Quentin Joyner and Amir Peterson, they both look like very good players. And so you can see where USC is pretty comfortable with that. Now, obviously we talked about, you know, maybe some of the Texas schools start to take another look at those guys, put some pressure on them. You know, you never know. USC might have to look locally. I mean, we talked about Damian Henderson, uh, the Los Alamitos, uh, six foot, 200 pound running back who had uh, 300 yards against uh, Santa Margarita the other week, being a guy that maybe, you know, USC takes a little longer to look at, but you know, We'll see. But, hey, man, we got time steps. Ever heard of them? Ever heard of them? And with that, I got to get to working on filling out the timestamps for this episode. Gerard, we almost went three hours again. What are you doing? Time stamps in a point where theoretical physicists are beginning <laughs> to doubt that time and space are fundamental to our universe. You know that, Chris? That having two stars could be a lot better than having one. I believe that was an astrophysicist or a planetary scientist that did that quote. So I think that kind of fits. So I, I decided to go with that. Really? Sounds like David Robinson to me. David Robinson, the basketball player? <laughs> yeah, that's no, who I thought it was. That is, that is not who that is. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I do hear it. I do hear it a little bit. But no, that is not who that is. Gerard, that is another long edition of Composite Two Star Recruits. Thank you for joining me. And thank you for having a discussion about with me about recruiting in your hot, hot garage. Uh, I really appreciate it. You appreciate it and appreciate you. Uh, again, shout out to our sponsor, Positive Star Recruits, Meredith Schlosser. Go check out her website, www.meredith.com. 
Schlosser.com and follow her on Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. Gerard, anything else you want to say before we get the heck on out of here? How many more minutes do we have till we hit the three hour mark? I'm not telling you that. So okay. and I got nothing else to say. Thank <laughs> you, everybody. Thank you, Chris Trevino, for hosting this podcast. Once again, it was the hot cast for me, but it's always hot a cast. pleasure to speak to the Peristyle. And we appreciate you guys subscribing and supporting uh, not only this podcast, but the website in general for us to be able to feed our families. Feed our families indeed. I am Chris. That is Gerard. And we will see you next time on Composite Two Star Recruits. Rise and shine, football fans. This is Susanna Fuller from Morning Footy, a podcast part of the CBS Sports Galazzo Network covering the breadth of the global game. Join me, Nico Cantor, Charlie Davies, Alexis Guerreros, and guests every morning for the perfect blend of news, analysis, conversation, and exclusive interviews. If you love soccer, then look no further. We've got you covered for Europe's top five leagues, the W Gold Cup, the Champions League Knockout Stage, CONCACAF Nations League, NWSL, MLS, Transfer News, and much more. Download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere podcasts are found. Subscribe to Morning Footy.